Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up, what's up, what's up? This is not uh, an added rhythm track. This is just a live version. Do you want another one? Go ahead. What's up? Oh, what's up? It's kind of got to the point when it, if it's not some sort of orchestrated dance beat. Was I disappointing? Was that a little bit... Little bit uh, no, I just wonder, I wonder whether people are now... People out jogging might now be expecting some hot banging beats at the beginning of the programme. What is a hot banging beat? I don't... I, I was in the Radio 1 Extra lift and apparently that was what I was getting, some tasty flavours. Did you not feel about hanging around for the Radio 3 lift? Yeah, but it's, you know, waiting for the lift. We've discussed this before, but it is... It, I have never felt so old as when going in the Radio 1 Extra lift. Chris Wilson has been on to us. Um, Hello, Chris. And this this attracted me because Ken Brown is going to be on very shortly, and this email is headed, Now is the witter of our discontent. discontent. See? Very good. Like that. The first time I heard your show was when I was channel surfing and heard a man going on and on and on about the BBFC classification system. That was spring 2006, and I've been hooked ever since. As an old Leninist, I think we should all have numbers indicating the date that we joined, like party members yeah. under what Chris calls the good old communist system. <laughs> when, was, when was that, by the way? The, the good, good old, old communist, communist system. system. And he, he's actually signed this email, Chris06 Wilson. <laughs> anyway, the reason I'm emailing is I've tried without success to interest other members of my family, friends, acquaintances and people on the bus, not advised, in the programme, but to no avail. My most recent attempt to make a convert was my daughter, Daisy's 15, going on stroppy. I was driving her to and from a social thing and played the podcast with the entertaining rant about Vince Vaughan. At the end of the journey, I asked her what she thought. She said, I hated it. When I asked why, she said it was just two old men bickering and one of them wouldn't let the other one finish his sentences and then the really annoying one just told everyone what they should think about a film. But that's exactly <laughs> what that I like about it. Me? That's exactly that's what really I liked annoying. about it, Chris. I said as she disappeared into her bedroom, entirely unconvinced. My point is, what can I do to convert this young lady to entertainment? Do any other listeners have any suggestions? I suggest you just wait. I'd give up, frankly. Yeah, it's just, it's a, you know, it just, it grows on you in the end, doesn't it? You think it's... Well, I mean, maybe not on everybody, but uh, yeah. But, I, but I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just slightly. I'm the really annoying one. Well, I don't. Yeah, but yeah. also by that reckoning, I'm the one that doesn't let you finish his sentences, and I think you are both. I think you're both the person that doesn't. No, let... no, 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 no. You, you I go. can't be there both the bad. There you go. I made a sentence and you interrupted it. So there you go. That proves that you're actually the only person uh, being referred. to. Knock, knock. Who's there? The interrupting cow. The Boo. I knew that one. The thing about I like about that email from Chris is that being an old Leninist, he wants to be told what to think, and so therefore, what I would suggest, Chris, is that what your daughter Daisy is suffering from is false consciousness. That she thinks that she doesn't like I'm the show. I'm thrilled that you know false consciousness. Well, I, did, I did history and politics. I know you did. Actually, you know more about history and politics than I do, which is why it's, I mean, much more than I do. You didn't go to uh, university in the 70s without learning a little bit about uh, false Marxist, consciousness, Marxist Leninist politics. Thank you, Minnie. Um, Lou Herring your money, it takes your bets, that's what Thank I you. say uh, Lou Herring says this Long, uh, Longish term listener, first time emailer I came across your show after the loss of my second pregnancy in 2012 Your witterings and ramblings have been a welcome escape from the pain and sadness of two subsequent losses Helping me feel less alone during nights in hospital And enabling me to smile when I didn't think it possible I'm delighted to say my partner and I welcomed a little boy Finley into the world last Wednesday He's happy, healthy and everything that we've been hoping for over the last three years 
You were there with us during the Labour, and he will be introduced to his first podcast this weekend. How old is he? Well, he's just been born. <laughs> exactly. So, so anyway, uh, we'd love a shout-out for our little ray of hope, as well as for any other couple struggling with pregnancy loss out there. Uh, many thanks, says Lou Herring. I kind of think this, uh, which we'll certainly do, I think... Absolutely. We, it's sort of... Congratulations. Makes, does that make us godparents? Well, in a very real sense, yes. Or godless parents. <laughs> or godless parents. Godless parents. <laughs> or just guardians. <laughs> just of the galaxy. Cinematic guardians <laughs> is how we should be. Um, Alexander Peterson from the Church of Wittertainment in Norway. He's the founder of it, you might yeah. remember. I was, of course, thrilled to hear Norwege your medley, medley a few weeks back of all the Norwegian songs that have got scored nil no points in the Eurovision Song <laughs> Contest. Particularly thrilling was your love for Tor Endresen and his song San Francisco. Yes, last, yes. Last Saturday, Mr. Anderson got back on the Eurovision horse in collaboration <laughs> with Elizabeth Andreasen of Bobby Sox fame. Oh, that one. To complete... To complete Hang in, on, Bobby. You carry on, I'm going to look it up. To compete in the Norwegian final. Sadly, your kind words and broadcasting powers didn't seem to work on the ESC crowd, so you won't be seeing Tor and Betten in Vienna in May. Oh, well, the, our church is growing steadily, 63 members and counting, and I think we're going to be watching Jeremy shortly. And P.S., to correct something I've always wanted to thank correct. Thank you. Thank you very much. So they will be watching it before you do. You pronounce the K and T in Knut, and the D in Mads is pronounced as a T. Someone has been lying to you, Mark. So Knut so, is Knut, and Mads is Mats. Well, as in Mats Mickelson. Yes. OK, well, can I just say that Mads Mickelson doesn't pronounce it Mats. Well, Mads Mickelson, that's false consciousness, and then Mads is calling himself the, the wrong, wrong thing, thing all the way through. He's, he says, um, because I know somebody, he refers to him as Mass, but it may be that he's sort of swallowing the tea. It may be like a kind of glottal stop thing. Um, anyway. You know the glottal stop? Bobby Sox won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1985. I've just found that out myself as well. Our Eurovision uh, correspondent. There is a Norwegian pop duo... Consisting of Han Kroch, Kroch, and Kroch, and Swedish Norwegian Elizabeth Andreasen. They won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1905 with the song Let That Swinger. I just means, mentioned. Do you know what Let That Swinger means? Does it mean Let, let That it, Swinger? It means Let It Swing, yeah. Uh, Pip Gilbert. Uh, I'm a newish. Oh, no, no, sorry, it's La Swinger. Not interested. I'm a newish convert, says Pip, to the church, thanks to my other half, who's a long term listener. From recollection, I've only disagreed with Mark's reviews twice. Monsters Inc. University. Really, Mark? Really? What is rubbish? How could you dismiss this and yet favour the bilge that is frozen, says Miss Pip. Oh, excuse me. Well, Frozen's going to come up in the programme because there's, I a, am... there's a Frozen short before the Kenneth Branagh film. I am writing to ask if you could wish me luck as I will be undertaking my grade two cello exam on Monday the 23rd. I haven't had a music exam in over 20 years and I'm getting more and more nervous as the day approaches, particularly as I've not been playing that long. I'm hoping to catch the latest Shaun the Sheep offering this weekend to calm me down, but would also appreciate a mention from your good selves in order to put me in the right frame of mind. I'm not allowed to listen to podcasts, by the way, your podcast, um, uh, when they, uh, yes, when they came out, as we store them up for road trips. Your pinky and perky rendition nearly resulted in me crashing the car. Uh, so if you do read this out, I probably won't hear it till mid-April. Well, what was the point of uh, wishing you luck for the 23rd of March if you're not going to hear it till April? Can I just tell you this? Time. Bobby Sox, the band, who have an exclamation point, you know, OK, so the concept behind... Exclamation Mark. Mark. The exclamation... No, I'm Mark, you're Simon. The concept behind Bobby Sox, exclamation Mark, was to bring up-to-date songs from the 19... Was to bring up-to-date songs from the 1950s with a swing mood, adding them a, inverted commas, modern 1980s sound. This idea was fully applied on their first LP, Bobby Sox, 
exclamation mark, which was a mixture of carbs right. and brain. I think so they're moving great. on now. Okay, I have a, a language question which I want to ask you. Go on. Okay. Do you know what the word original means in, um, in estate agent terms? Because this is completely new to me. I was having a conversation... Is this relevant to anything that we talk about on this show? Yes, it's to do with language and language correct through usage and what words mean and blah, 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 blah. So I was having a conversation with, a, with somebody the other day, just, just the other day who's an estate agent, and they referred to something as very original, OK? Madcap. Eccentric. No, 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 no. Very original means absolutely scruffy as all heck. But that's what you know in the whole thing about... So when you, we don't say something is bad, you don't say something is run, then you say it's very original. So I'm going to... I, that's now going to become part of my new vocabulary of film because I love that word. And something isn't bad or terrible, it's very original. Isn't it? Well, that's... Yeah, so if somewhere's got potential is what they will... Yeah, it's, it's exactly, potential. But very original means basically... And it'd be very original. It, it's either original or it's not original. Well, we were the originals, and then it turned out that there was already a band called The Originals, so we changed our name to The New Originals, but then... Anyway, uh, back to stuff relating to what we do... Um, why, why is it that stuff that it, stuff about you know births and marriages and stuff that you read out listeners, relates listeners. to what we do? An original, but what? But I was, but I'm it's it, not relevant to anything. A conversation you had with an estate agent about a, I, a phrase that I may well now use in film reviewing, the term, other, which the is other, it's very original. The other day I was in a news agent and I said, "Can I have a newspaper?" And the guy said, "Yes." It's amazing. You could work that up into an anecdote. Probably could. I'll put it in the uh, autobiography. Uh, David, are you writing an autobiography? No, of course not. From the Portuguese hills, he's been writing. You know, we were talking about intervals, and and countries where they they're showing a movie and then they, they, they just stop, stop for no reason in order to have a Bobby Socks break. Here in Portugal, the cinemas, including our local, which has all of one showing of a film at nine thirty on a Friday, they always have an interval at forty minutes in. Whatever's happening, regardless of what's happening on the screen, forty minutes in, they have an interval, and it's always seven minutes long though no-one can explain how this duration has been arrived at. If you would extend your political remit to Portugal, I'm certainly many would thank is it you. A to- is it a toilet break thing? But how weak does your bladder have to be to go after 40 minutes? Well, no, but if they're saying if it's always after Always 40 at 40 minutes. and always for seven minutes in Portugal. We, we should stand in the local Portuguese elections and stamp this out. That's, but that's, that's so specific. Yeah. And I mean, it must it must have been something to do with real changes because you'd have to have had the interval at the end of a reel. I mean, I mean, nowadays it's all DCPs, but you'd have had to have it at the end of a reel. But but forty minutes is a how strange. Maybe it's if they it's like first two or first three reels, and then they have a break. Maybe it's to do with changing projectors, or maybe because the bulb gets overheated. What? How very strange. Always forty minutes. Always seven. Minutes. Always seven minutes. So, uh, any other Portuguese wittertainees want to get in touch and uh, and explain what's going on? That would be uh, that would be extremely useful. We got some bobby socks, by the way. We're not going to wait until the end. Okay. Oh, Here we go. Is this let that finger? It let that finger. There you go. Obviously, it's like Waterloo. A bit of ABBA. Yeah. Wait, wait, and then. Well, because it's not very good. Well, they haven't started singing yet. I think they've been listening to ABBA. They just... No, no, I think you can hear that the concept behind Bobby Socks was to bring up-to-date songs from the 1950s with a swing mood and then a add... Swing a, a swing. <laughs> swing mood. And add a modern 1980s sound. Can we get to the chorus? As they say in Tom Petty, the Heartbreakers, don't bore us, show us the chorus. Two, three, five, and six. Let it rock and roll. I'm in Let it swing and let your feeling take control. Oh, ho, ho. Why? 
You're waving then your hands. Then it's finger, let it rock and roll. I, like, I, you know, I, I, it was gone, and now suddenly it's back. I forgot that I had that in my... For a moment, it was like being in a studio with Max Bygraves, the way you were swinging your hands there. <laughs> you need hands. On the subject of the music, just before the show starts for real, by the way... Uh, Is Jane, this not the show? Jane Lambert, may I, may I take a, a suggestion for my fellow Wittertainies? Don't go to sleep listening to the playlist. We'll add that to the playlist. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I had completely forgotten that I knew that song quite well. You might drop off to the soothing sounds of A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow, but you will almost certainly be woken up an hour later to the less than soothing sounds of Walk With Me in Hell by Lamb of God, wondering what on earth is happening to you. <laughs> So it's very true. Yeah, you do have to be very, very careful. Why? When we were talking about that thing, I said, Tom Petty, don't bore us, um, show us the chorus. And Robin, in my head, said, wasn't that Roxette? Remind me who Robin is. Robin is the uh, what you, is it editor Edit. or producer? Editor. editor. Robin's the editor of the show. Um, do, was there a Roxette song? Because it was cert- it certainly it was the Tom Petty motto, because there was a very good documentary about them on BBC4, in which they, that was, yes... That's terrible. So Robin has just said in my head, which you probably didn't hear, that yes, Roxette's greatest hits compilation was called Don't Bore Us, Get to the Chorus, which they must have half-inched off Tom Petty in the heart. Oh, it's a Roxette, terrible thing. Did Roxette do a version of Down the Torpedoes? They are the most boring band in the world. They came onto the Radio 1 show. I remember being in the studio when you interviewed them. Horrible. Yes, I, they were genuinely petrifying in as much as you did turn into a tree. Well, they just had no interest in anything. <laughs> Since then, I've never... Least of all you... Yeah. So, in other words, guys, what's the point of you coming in if you don't want to talk to us? So you Should know. we relive the majesty of that? I'll be you, you be Roxette. Okay. Hi, Roxette, you've got a single that's riding high in the charts. It's uh, being on constant airplay. Welcome to the show. So, tell us a little bit about, about the band. I don't know what... Should we, what should we do later? Yes, OK, let's go and do something else. You want some crisps? No, I'd rather have chocolate. Are you going to go out? No, I'm not really going to. But they did it. They did that in Euro accents. You're, but you're doing it in English. You have to do it with a comedy Euro accent. They just weren't bothered. No, they just weren't bothered. I'm over it. You're so over it. <laughs> That's. I had forgotten that again. I've forgotten that, and now this is. I'm. I'm like having a total recall moment. I'm just suddenly remembering all this stuff that's happened to me. This could only go very badly, so why don't we stop this moment and start the show, because Sir Ken Branagh... Is he here? ...is on the way. Is he here? He's he's in the Radio 3 lift. Is he in the building? He insists on the Radio 3 lift. He's not getting in the one extra lift. He absolutely is. He refuses. So he's not laying down some banging beats. He has people to go ahead of him who can go into the one extra lift. Yeah. And then he has other people to just keep the Radio 3 lift poised and ready and oiled for Ken. I bet he likes a bit of pop me. I bet he'd like a bit of let that swing. I don't think one extra plays a lot of Bobby Socks. Not really. Exclamation point. Mark. Yes, Simon. Carry on. Uh, welcome to the programme. We're here till four o'clock and uh, we have got, just as we didn't uh, say this beforehand, uh, reviews of all these films coming up between oh, we're doing now and that four now? o'clock. Okay, yeah, fine. well, so we didn't do it before. So. Wildcard, which is a new Jason Satham film, Home, which is an animation, uh, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, which is a Ghibli animation, which is uh, really rather wonderful, uh, The Gunman, which is the Sean Penn film that you were talking about earlier on, in which Sean Penn came on and talked about it. And uh, But, of course... All attention right now is on our special guest. That's right. And uh, can I just recommend the live stream? Because the live stream is normally... Two old blokes in a room. (laughs) Uh, uh, But now we can actually offer... Three old blokes in a room. (laughs) Speak for yourself. But but one, an international superstar, because (laughs) he's Kenneth Branagh, and he's already chortling away. And so much of the chorus... Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. So much of the chorus... Thank you for having me. One of the reasons we're looking forward to having Ken back on is that he he chortles (laughs) like no one else. There he is, and he's off off and running. (laughs) You're good company, boys, I must say. Is that right? It is. It's true. It's true. I cannot tell a lie. Is one of the reasons for the smile 
smile across the side of your face, across the front of your face, obviously. <laughs> can smile across the side of his yes, face? Yes, across the side. In fact, from one side to the, to the other. other. Interesting. Can I just, uh, yes, sorry to interrupt you. When I played Henry V a thousand years ago, one of the things that the historical uh, archivists said was that he had a scar on the side of his face, on the side of his face, which meant from the side as though it looked as though he was smiling all the time. And it was a very effective, very effective wow. appearance for a ruler. Very they, good. For what it's good. Worth, no, 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 historical no. anecdote. There. He has already raised the tone of the programme. <laughs> That's right. And if anyone is just going to drop in a Shakespearean anecdote, <laughs> it's going to be Ken Branagh. Can I just say, right, before, before we get into talk about Cinderella, I'm going to finish the thought. The reason for the smile on your face from ear to ear is because Cinderella opening weekend, $132.5 million, huge uh, box office success, so congratulations. Thank you very, very much. So why are you even here promoting it when you <laughs> frankly don't need to? Oh, no, well, I'm always happy to be here. I was, I was saying to you on it, I'm going to say it live that uh, it, it, we've all been doing this for a long time now and maybe a lot of the <laughs> listeners out there have also been, thank God, listening and, and seeing and doing and hearing some of the things we do. And I'm very grateful uh, for the long-term conversation, which is across some of the movies that haven't worked so well and haven't opened to $132 million. Uh, um, and so it's nice to... It's nice to keep the conversation going in the um, for the in the good commercial times. ones, the good times, the bad times, whatever you might like. Did to the call Magic them. Flute not take 132 million dollars in its opening weekend? I'm still counting, Mark, and I think uh, it may be 132 pence at the moment, but uh, we're, we're, I think it, it, it's, it's looking to, it's looking to improve its. But if, but it, but but if the the Magic Flute doesn't have them queuing round the block, you say, okay, well, it's the Magic Flute. You know, we did our, you know, it's 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 a noble it's a noble film, and obviously it wasn't going to be number one. But when you're doing a movie, you have the responsibility of doing a Disney Cinderella live-action kind of remake of the 1950... If, if you haven't got a number, people are going to start asking questions. So there must be a huge sense of relief now. The relief, I cannot tell a lie. It is, it is, a, it is a great relief. But, of course, the, the numbers game, I think, is a, uh, you can get a bit too tied up with. What that represents is people are going to see the movie. And that's what's important to me, is that there's an audience at the other end of it because that's what completes the work. And that, that's what means that instead of just looking at figures, you now bump into people who've actually seen it. You bump into little girls and little boys and grown-up girls and boys who've seen the movie and for whom it means something thing and and you get surprised by for instance um a little gal uh, the other night she'd seen it i guess she was about seven i said you enjoyed i love the film love the film and what did you like i like the moment when cinderella was crying very upset but then the old lady came and asked if she could have a glass of milk and cinderella gave it to her straight away and she completely forgot that she was upset and i thought that was very nice of her well, you know, you can't sort of legislate for how things are going to... But I found that very touching and very affecting. And every time I hear, uh, just bumped into one of your distinguished colleagues earlier who said that they'd taken their daughter to see it, I get hugely excited when I think that people are taking their kids to see this film. I think, uh, um, you, you know, because it touches on important things and you just hope those kids are going to have a good time like we had, or at least I had good times seeing fairy tales in, in the cinema when we were kids. Now, do you remember last time you came in, um, we asked you if you were hungry and you said you'd like some chocolate and we got you some chocolate and we got you a, a two-fingered chocolate treat, <laughs> but you only ate one of them. Uh, is it still? Oh, it's there. There it is. Thank you. There it is. Just so there's the second one, just in case you feel the need to. I think we can say Twix, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I was. Mark has given me the second finger. That's what I was going to say. I think a two-fingered treat sounds a lot worse than saying we're giving you a Twix. I'm with you on that one. Frankly, when you've taken 132 million, you can buy your own. You can buy your own Twix. Yeah, I'm going to see if Disney will get the other half of that. So, when you were given the gig, when you were asked to take the gig, did you? instinctively know the kind of Cinderella that you wanted to make because clearly the movie knows exactly what it wants to do. 
Well, I I was surprised and delighted to be asked about it. I thought um, a fairy tale and, a, and, a, and a, with with women absolutely at the centre of it was was a, a good and interesting surprise for me. And as always, it then depended on the script. And so I read the script by Chris White's. Uh, a writer with whom I'd worked uh, prior to this on a, on a movie we never got made, but we had a great relationship. He's a director, an excellent, excellent director, and a really a funny man, really witty and and dry. But he he was headed in the direction of a, a rather a heartfelt tale, which was uh, although funny and humorous and wry, not cynical and not um, sort of postmodern. It's not stepping out of the movie at any time to point at the characters and say they're silly or fairy tales are silly or we're all silly for watching it. Um, it starts with the idea. That that Cinderella in this happy, functioning, loving family is instructed by her mama to think about the idea of having courage and being kind as a way of getting you through some of life's uh, um, bumps. And, um, and we started from there and thought, can we cast someone who can convey that? And can that message, that sincere message that it's nice to be nice, uh, be, be also involve a, bit, a little wit and a little bit of fun and a little bit of um, sexiness and a little bit of intelligence, and we thought that it could. So we started from there, and that seemed like a real piece of revision in the centre of the story that often sees her as passive, a victim, woman waits for man to rescue her. That was not something we wanted to do. Obviously, the, the, the key bit, a, a lot of important casting to be, to be sorted out. Tell us about your Cinderella. Uh, Lily James is our Cinderella. You will have seen her as Lady Rose on TV's Downton Abbey. Um, and she came in originally to read for the, one of the stepsisters, Lucy Bevan, our excellent casting director, and noticed uh, 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 that she had blonde hair, which she was uh, using for Lady Rose, and, and the Cinderella of it all started nudging into her imagination. And I heard her speak first, the, the voice, given, you know, it always struck me that most of us hear fairy tales for the first time as people read them to us, our mm. parents read them. So, so the, a voice in a fairy tale becomes crucial. Hers, like Helena Bonham Carter, who narrates a lot of the films, the fairy godmother, have warm and intelligent and musical and, and, and richly toned voices. Indeed, these two sexy boys yourselves have these very things. So um, Siri did that. Just, well, and, well, now, I, and now we're putty in his hands. Now I just suddenly realised I'm in the world. I'm in the world of the the listening world. But uh, when it came to um, Lily, she had that, and then she had a sense of fun all the way through a long process, which probably included five, six, seven auditions, readings, screen tests, working with Richard Madden, her, her soon-to-be screen prince, and then um, uh, and through that process over a number of months, she she seemed as though she could retain this sense of play that the character needed as well. And all of that, combined with this amazing experience from Downton, seemed as though she'd be able to carry the, the responsibility of playing the character and have fun with it. It was crucial that she have fun so that we could. How many auditions did she have then? Well, I guess I guess it was probably seven in the end. And I remember it because way back I probably did that number when I auditioned unsuccessfully for the role of Mozart in the film of Amadeus um, <laughs> uh, for Milos Forman. So I went in there seven times. I read with every actor in British equity and failed conspicuously to get the job in the end. Uh, but it was very interesting. That's my favourite movie of yeah. all time. Obviously, it, if you'd, if you'd got it, the gig, would it would have been, been even yes, more. exactly. I'd have loved it even more. Well, that's very kind of you to say. But I thought Tom Hulse, who I subsequently worked with, did a fantastic job. But it was interesting. So I... I I certainly knew what she was going through. There's a there's a process that has to go on, I think, before everybody knows that this big leap in the dark can 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 be made with some degree of confidence. 
when we made Thor a few years ago, I remember saying to Kevin Feige at Marvel that, that as good as the script is, and of course, because you could, of course, cast, you'll be able to cast the part. There will be some great big lad who's, who's perfectly good. But if it's not the perfect piece of casting, this film with its difficult tone, just like Cinderella with a difficult, challenging tone here, it won't work unless it's totally and specifically crafted around someone who responds to that script and, and, and who brings something to it as well um, because it's a very fine and delicate quality that's required. In both cases, even paradoxically, with Thor as a great big butch lad, nevertheless, Chris Hemsworth's subtle performance made the difference to that movie. Right. So uh, we need to play a clip. So uh, I think we've got all a lot of the major cast here. So we have the the Ugly Sisters, and we have Kate Blanchett, and we have Cinderella. So just tell us who these who who are playing these roles, who's in the cast, and then we'll hear a bit from the film. Uh, so we have uh, indeed uh, those you've mentioned. Helena Bonham Carter plays the fairy godmother. Derek Jacobi plays the king. Stellan Garsgård plays the, the the Grand Duke, and uh, they variously uh, do their thing. Okay, so but, but this is where Kate Blanchett uh, is is here with the sisters, and this is where they're naming Cinderella. Oh, well, there you go. You 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 have the advantage. That was the crucial there. piece of information no, that you didn't pass on no, to Six Sense. I think I think it was clear. You'll catch up, Ken. It's all right, Karen. Uh, so he, here's a clip from Cinderella. Adam. It's ash from the fireplace. I thought breakfast was ready. It is, madam. I'm only mending the fire. Future, could we not be called until the work is done? As you wish. Ella, what's that on your face? Madam? It's ash from the fireplace. Do clean yourself up. You'll get cinders in our tea. I've got a new name for her. Cinderella. I didn't bear to look so dirty. Oh, oh, dirty Ella. <laughs> Cinderella. That's what we'll call you. Oh, girls, you're too clever. <laughs> Who's this for? Is there someone we've forgotten? It's my place. Oh, it seems too much to expect you to prepare breakfast, serve it, and still sit with us. Wouldn't you prefer to eat when all the work is done, Ella? Or should I say Cinderella? Hmm. <laughs> what a great laugh. That's a great laugh, isn't it? <laughs> when Cinderella says, as you wish, at that point, I said, it's a little bit of Princess Bride coming in because that, that happens all the way through. And I love that. And I love that movie. Well, you sat there with a big smile on your face there, Ken. Yeah. Well, it, you know, again, we, well, we were just talking about voices again. You, you think, I, I'm thinking, God, this plays really well on the radio. And this is partly because Kate Blanchett has this sort of musicality. The girls, Sophie McShearer and, and Holiday Granger, who play the two stepsisters and uh, Lily herself. And I don't know. I was also aware as you listen to a scene like that, that it, it's so... Um, it's 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 a scene that many people will recognise, and one of the things that I found exciting, not not intimidating about this, is when at the first preview of this film about a year ago, with a, a, a room full of kids as well as adults, was seeing the lights go down and realising that from the five-year-olds to the eighty-five-year-olds, every single person knew what was going to happen next. Highly unusual. Half the time you're trying to explain a tone and a world and everything, but here it was how it happened next that was going to be the difference between it, whether it was an enjoyable experience or not. And I was also noticing that this sort of ritual of needing to tell these tales again is something that people, I think, really respond to. So it's it's funny to think about working with material that children so young you know, can, can recognise. When you say the first preview of the film was about a year ago, yeah. I mean, that sounds like an extraordinarily long time. To- I mean, this is something, therefore, that you made. You were doing the well, shooting. I was shooting in the autumn of 2013. I mean, any film on this scale, in my limited experience, anyway, is two years of your life for sure. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and uh, in this case, uh, post-production, we didn't do any additional shooting on this film, by the way, which is quite unusual, but the process, the long, slow process of, of refining, so for instance, the first assembly of this film was maybe two hours, 40 minutes, so first job is how do I get 40 minutes out mm. of the movie? It, shouldn't, it feels like a movie a lot of kids will see shouldn't be over two hours um and to do that well rather than just making great excisions you know um uh is a slow process and um and then you know we 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 did need to sort of see what an initial reaction was was it too grown up was it too childlike was it what were we trying to get and what were the kids were telling us and and uh and do, you, listening. do you find that process um, helpful and do you find it constructive? Because I know a lot of people <clears throat> sort of rail against it. But, of course, it's, it's as old as cinema itself. I was reading right. a wonderful article about, um, you know, Buster Keaton comedies being tried out with audiences who actually had, um, uh, you know, uh, knobs on, on, on their chairs that they could turn it up at the scenes that they enjoyed and turn it down as they didn't. And he would therefore judge, you know, which scenes were funny, which scenes mm-hmm. were working. Do you find it is a helpful process to, to test it? I think the key is it's helpful, but it's not one that you should be led by. But there are these examples. Casablanca, way back, shot for 20 days. They did a preview. Uh, they learned something and they, they, uh, they then shot for two more days and shot the scene at the end on, uh, at the airport. So so if you like Casablanca, you could argue the preview process was helpful for that movie. Um, it depends on whether you then try, as a result of information, to make every kind of movie for everybody in that audience, because it will still represent quite a lot of disparate opinions, which any piece of work will will um, you know uh, receive. Um, so I think you look in broad terms for. Um, Yes, yeah, certainly things like comedy. That we, 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 you know, what makes people does the laugh. joke work? Yeah, exactly right. And then, uh, and and uh, and uh, yeah, I think I, th- I think you just you you respond. The the biggest help of a preview is to sit in the room for the first time. If you've been in an editing room with maybe just you and an editor for three four months, and then you maybe played it to a couple of friends, or or you've shared it with producers in the studio first, of course, and then. Um, to actually put it in a room where uh, it's packed, you start seeing and hearing the movie in a different way for the very first time. Um, and if they said nothing and made no reaction, you would see the movie differently because suddenly your whole insides have changed. And it isn't just anxiety or apprehension. Um, you're just aware. Frankly, sometimes in the silences, I can hear when an audience is bored. There's a silence that says that they're not connecting. I love that your story about the scene that the little girl liked where Cinderella gives a glass of milk Mm. because you spent a lot of money on this movie. Well, (laughs) the the studio did. That must be about the cheapest scene. (laughs) But of all the stuff... I like the milk. (laughs) Of all the scenes that, you know, it's not the huge coach transformation. It's not the ball, which is an astonishing sequence. Hundreds of people. It was a scene with a glass of milk. There you go. It was lovely milk. It was lovely milk. We spent a lot of money on that. Um, I think it's one of the one of the things that struck me about the film was that in that very ball sequence to which you refer, um, in another uh, anecdotal moment, uh, uh, I was talking to someone the other day, and the ball sequence came up, and a number of people uh, graciously said, "Oh, they love the scale of it, the spectacle, the live candles, and the chandeliers, and the dancing, and all the rest of it, and all of these hundreds and hundreds of extras, and the camera work, and the splendor." And this woman came up to me and said, oh, "I loved, I loved that ball." Love that ballroom sequence. My favourite, favourite thing was his hand on the small of her back, which is an insert shot. I mean, I didn't need to be in a studio for that. That could we could have we could show, we could have shot that in here. And so suddenly, the ballroom sequence for her was only about that hand on the small of the back and a, and an intake of breath. I wonder if there's a 
In fact, I was listening to the, the, the few clips from the Eclipse commentary right at the beginning of the show uh, and, uh, and Nicky's comments and all that kind of stuff because it was uh, this, this, this huge deal this morning. And there was a moment on the TV where Brian Cox and Dara O'Brien were describing what was happening. And as it got to the maximum point, totality, Brian Cox says, said something like, this is it, this is the Eclipse moment. And there's a scene in... You'll see where I'm going now. There's a scene in your movie which we're is all, like... We're all eager. It's the Cinderella moment where Helena Bonham Carter, she's doing the you shall go to the ball bit, you know, granting the wish. And that's, that's sort of the bit that you absolutely had to get abs- completely nailed. Well, I think there, there are a number of moments like that. And I think the, the, the callback, um, which is uh, a, a differently vivid moment, is when uh, just before that, Kate Blanchett has ripped um, the, the dress of, of Cinderella and says with such viciousness, you shall not go to the ball. And we, from, from that moment, interestingly, in the original 1950 animated uh, classic, it's a 72-minute movie. There's tons of songs. There's tons of cat and mouse action. And the story could be confined to maybe 15, 20 minutes and sort of is. But in that 15, 20 minutes, in that 72 minutes total running time, they spend an inordinate amount of time relative to, to what everything else they do on the very moment of which you speak. Both the, the, the nadir, which is, I don't believe anymore, the crisis of faith, I no longer believe. I don't believe in fairy tales. I don't believe in, I don't believe in, in, in fairy godmothers. And they, in the, that 1950 film, we see her weeping and weeping and weeping. The godmother, the stepmother, says that horrible line, and then and then Helena comes in in this case to uh, to have that payback after some fun with the shoes and the transformation and everything that in a story like this. Again, back to that preview, I could feel people leaning forward at these key moments, at these moments that are somehow in the culture, these transformation moments, this desire that she will be all right, it'll be all right, and then she'll still get back before midnight strikes. And um, the key to trying to get it right was just to be as honest as we could, back to what we were talking about earlier, trying to have this sincerity uh, that that is, uh, you know, without naivety and does have a twinkle in its eye, both from... Helena's performance and indeed from Lily's. Did it tr- tr- worry you at all? That, I mean, one of the things with something like Cinderella is you know that if it if it works, it will be something that will be watched again and again and again and again. People will watch it and they'll show it to their kids because obviously we've all grown up with the anime. There are certain films that we all know. And because it's such an iconic story, because, as you said, everyone was read it, everyone has watched a version of it, is there part of you when you're making the film thinking, this isn't, I'm not just making this for now, I'm making this for five years, ten years hence, and how do I prevent it from ageing? I mean, it is a timeless tale and it's... I mean, that's an interesting question. I think that I, I, in a way, I answered it unconsciously. I think I don't think you can feel that during because you, it's, I, th- I think you get too worried about sort of... You're running ahead of yourself. You've just got to be in the moment. But unconsciously, I believe that... Um, questions that I had up front and people asked me about, well, could it be modern? Could it be set in 21st century London or Brooklyn or whatever? And my instinct was that it would date quickly if that were the case. Um, Just in terms of technology, we know week by week, you know, new devices and platforms and things spring up that mean everything that you would include in a modern version would, I think, be quickly out of date. Hence the reason to go back to what you might call a timeless period, a little blur of the 19th and 18th centuries, a world where you might expect fairy tales in our longer imaginations to exist and a period and dresses and things that you might sort of expect to be in this kind of story and that that, if you know, visually splendid, would, you, would allow, you for, so, allow you some room for a, a central message which is that difficult thing to achieve, simple without without being simplistic what was the hardest scene to film what was the thing that was the most trouble 
Uh, the ballroom sequence, uh, not not Just so much because of logistically logistics, but also you know it was as important to get all the dances right as it was to get that hand on the small of the back. Um, ahead of that, um, the, the the hardest things to conceive were transformations that that particularly was something I loved doing. But the run back from the ball once the stroke of midnight uh, strikes was a sequence shot over the entire course of the shooting period of the movie of four or five months. So you're always doing bits of it. Here's a bit of Cinderella in the garden, and now here's a mouse here, and now he has a goose. And three <laughs> weeks later, we're doing the coachman landing on the hay, and then we're going to do the conversion with the big ears, and and then we do some green screen, and then some are created in the computer. All of that had to be pre-visualized. Put together and then of course you want to keep a little uh, you know eye and ear open in case uh, you have a better idea and and the shooting of it starts to tell you how it might be even better so that 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 keeping a, a strong idea of how it should be planning it and still being open to a better idea is that that's a challenge is there, is there anything that strikes you as strange about the fact that you have turned into a director who is completely at home with special effects that you have made effectively big special effects movies when you look back at how you began you know, it, it's not what everybody would have imagined was going to happen. Uh, it is unusual, yes, to be uh, in... Uh, and as a f- fairly sort of uh, prehistoric creature in relation to the digital and uh, uh, modern world... It's, but you didn't it's, have a mobile phone for ages, For a long you? time, yeah, yeah. And I still, you know, I'm not a social media boy and don't... don't you know, I, I keep my... Um, I keep my, as it were, technical savvy exclusively for, for, for uh, work on films, and I'm very glad to have it because I do feel as though I know a little bit more about what's going on because of it. Um, just can you set the record straight? You might think you've done this already, but on the subject of Lily James's waist, which has come up uh, on a fairly uh, regular basis, some controversy from the, those who suggest that either you photoshopped it small or she was required to wear a corset and the observation that maybe she's been made to look too thin. Obviously, it's an important area just to get the facts right. So what's the truth? No photoshopping, no adjustment. Um, corsets worn by all the girls who all have slim waists, uh, or slim in any case, and who all, all wear corsets. Uh, in the case of Lily's waist, she has a, a particularly slim waist and uh, in relation to the corset beautifully designed by uh, Sandy Powell, there is also an optical illusion to do with the width of the shoulders, the width of the bodice and the width of the skirt and indeed in some pictures that are pointed to this there's the additional uh, help of, of shadowing uh, there is no suggestion in the picture at all, quite the opposite of the promotion of a negative uh, body image. And there is that at no point was there any kind of sense of uh, kind of unhealthiness with, with Lily herself then, before or since. Sure. And, and Cinderella, I think people, parents will go and they'll, they'll be extremely pleased with the, the way Cinderella is portrayed, that she is, although she has all these terrible people around her, she sort of seems in control. Mm-mm. And that idea of having courage and being kind is not a bad maxim to have. I think so, and I think that uh, I've been thrilled, not not only uh, because uh, reactions from parents have have endorsed that, uh, that that it isn't pre-set, however. She doesn't come across as saintly. She evolves during the course of the movie. All the characters do, and that's something I think I'm very proud of in the picture. Um, But... um, uh, she wears this lightly, you know. She simply she 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 does it with a sense of fun, and uh, uh, she earns it. And more importantly for me, kids are coming up and uh, coming out and loving her for that, and not finding they're being spoken to or preached to. I just want to ask you about Richard the Third before you go, because they've dug him up. The real Richard. The real. The real. The real. He's Richard. not on this afternoon. Is he? <clears throat> no, he's, he's not. not. He's after the news and sport. Yeah. Okay. But they are very but, rattly. Beware of that. But they're gonna. You know, he's gonna. He's, he was buried once, and now he's gonna be buried again. I just sort of think you should be in charge of that. 
of of the of the of the reburial of the of the reburial. Where, where, where's he going, or where do you think he should go? He's probably going to Westminster Abbey or something. Seems sensible, doesn't it? But I think that, that it's, isn't it legal? Doesn't he have to go to work? I, I think so. Oh, there's a terribly messy. Also, he made a hell of a mess in that car park in mm. Leicester, didn't he? Uh, Chris Payne on uh, on on via social media. Uh, any news on Macbeth as directed by Scorsese? The stage Scorsese, the stage production in 2013 was quite incredible. A lot of uh, conversations as to whether this is going to happen. What can you tell us, Ken Branagh? We're, we're uh, practically there with this uh, with this happening. We will remount the production, and uh, uh, all things being well, Mr. Scorsese will direct a. a, a a film version of that production. Uh, the fingers are hovering above pieces of paper. We've been talking about it. Everybody wants to do it, and it's just a question of schedule. So I'm very, 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 very hopeful it's going to happen. How long would it take to do? Um, again, that's under consideration in terms of uh, exactly what we do. Because to some extent, the the invitation is for, for the maestro to do what he will with mm. this, to be very impressionistic with it and very abstract. So it's really a bit, a bit how long's a piece of string until we sit down. He's currently in Taiwan making silence. So um, and, and because of that distance, sometimes that's the nature of the communication as well. But your feeling is it's going to happen probably. If I was a betting man, I'd say we're in, we're in, we're in great shape, yeah. That would be something to look forward to. Oh, it would be fantastic. That would be fantastic. Ken Brennan, Martin Scorsese, Macbeth. Well, Scorsese, Shakespeare. That's, I like the sound yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that apart, Ken, what do we, what do we see you in next? Uh, Wallander. The, I've just finished shooting the final three uh, Wallander films. Uh, people may know as a Swedish detective that uh, plays on, on, on BBC One. We shoot the, the shows in Sweden, although one of these last three was shot in South Africa. South Africa based on a novel called The White Lioness and the final two films of this entire sort of 12 film series of these English Wallanders that covers all of the books that were written about Mankell and about Wallander and some short stories by Heading Mankell the last two cover the very brilliant novel uh, that he finished this story with The Troubled Man and it's a, really a, a sensational um, novel and I hope the films are going to be special and On the subject of TV, you've chosen a TV movie of the week which we'll, we'll get to Mark's selection later but um, have you chosen one? Yes, I have, yeah. Uh, Edward Scissorhands is what... Uh, oh, very good. Yeah. Do you have the, the screening details, Ken? Uh, I don't have See, the screening details. See, comes in unprepared. See, me. that's the difference in him and me. I could have told you when it was on. Uh, uh, Hang on. Uh, <laughs> it didn't give them to me. I, uh, uh, it's it's 4.50 in the afternoon on Sunday. On that's what I was going to say. It's 4.50, uh, you know, on, on whatever Simon just said. That's right. It is, but it is, it is a, again, that's wonderful and timeless and, you know, has managed yeah. to absolutely not age at all. Oh, it's brilliant. It's absolutely And heartbreaking. And, yeah, yeah. And so unusual, visually, staggeringly uh, unusual and and to see an actor sort of transform themselves like that, like uh, Mr. Depp in that, it's just uh, it, it was great. I thought it was really groundbreaking, and as you say, um, you know, stays fantastic. But it's a good week for movies. Am I allowed to know what you what you've chosen, or you have to do this at a special time? I have to look at the list. I haven't. Uh, you're, oh, you're, 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 you're ahead of, you're ahead of the, the game. You see, between you and me, Mark. it's the preparation. Ken. See, Brady, would you we just kind so, of make it up as we go along? Well, I'm very pleased to see that. So, two things to say: Cinderella is out next week, and the other thing to say is Richard III's being buried in Leicester Cathedral. That, well, that's where he is. Oh, then you well, can do that. That's well, fine. That, that, yeah. seems, that seems very good. They get the car parking space back and everybody's happy. Uh, Ken Brenner, we appreciate you coming in as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Do feel free to take your chocolate uh, finger treat. I'm going to take my one <laughs> finger surprise uh, <laughs> out of its open wrapper. <laughs> Ken Brenner, thank you. It's Five Live, 2.35. Uh, five Live. Nigel Pittman says, can you have the brilliant Mr Branner on every week? Could you have Knight's Corner? Or Ken's corner. <laughs> as far as we're concerned, he could come on every week. And I was just, we were just talking about how attractive it is to have 
one of the world's greatest chuckles. And we were saying that because, but you were saying that your laugh sounds like. Well, I sound like Amadeus, and you you just you, sound you like just got a laugh, which, which, is, is, a, which yeah, is all perfect, abrasive fine. and unpleasant. But he has a laugh that uh, that makes you smile, yeah. doesn't it? It twinkles, and I think... he should be he should be running a pub. He should be pulling pints and listening to people's stories whilst laughing in a joke to make them feel better about it. Because that would be a really good use of his talents. No, but you... Okay, but that's what what you said. No, mind. I think, um, although there have been rumours of the Scorsese, Branagh, Shakespeare film, uh, I think that's the first time he's actually said, look, I think this is going to happen. Yes. That would be be quite something. Scorsese doing Shakespeare with Ken Branagh. Very good. Um, so we'll do the box office. T- so we, we, because Ken was available to us at two o'clock, we've uh, rearranged things. We've rearranged so we're going to do move the whole schedule around. That's right. The top ten uh, is coming up now. Uh, an email from Alex Pitaway in Sydney. Alex Pitaway. Alex Pitaway. Alex Pitaway. Sorry. Oh, I see. Sorry. Sorry. Got it. Fine. It was Calamity Jane. Yeah. Yeah. You're fine. Got it. My name is Alex. I'm a young pastor in training in Sydney and also a recent convert to the Church of Wittertainment, the etymology of which I'm still coming to terms with. In my, It'll take a while, Alex. In my journey to become a man of the cloth, I've also developed a keen interest in cinema criticism, which is why it was so devastating for myself and other Australian cinephiles to be deprived of our weekly dose of film criticism when our flagship film show, Margaret and David's At the Movies on the ABC the Australian BBC equivalent, mm-hmm. was retired after decades of service. When did this happen? Obviously quite recently. Margaret and David's At The Movies features Margaret Pomeranz and the splendidly named David David Stratton. Very good. David David Stratton. David David Stratton. I, I, Is that like Magnus Magnusson? Well, no, because there's... No. It would be lovely to introduce them. David David Stratton, Magnus Magnusson. Boutros, Boutros, Garley. Garley. But David David Stratton, I think, is, I'm, I'm going to give my... I think that'd be good. I'm Simon Simon, and you can be Mark Mark. It just has a certain ring to it. Anyway, with Margaret and David gone... Sorry, David David. I desperately searched the internet looking for a fix. Thankfully, I ran into your YouTube reviews, and after several days of binge-watching, I was pleased to emerge with a new source of qualitative weekly film criticism. My question to you is... Have qualitative? You, quali- quality? It says qualitative. I'm just passing it on. Okay, okay. No, no, sure. He's a pastor. My question to you is, have you ever met Margaret and David? And can you ask any of your other Australian listeners if they feel the same as I do and that your show maybe has become Australia's new Margaret and David? I'll be David. Okay, I'll be Margaret. Uh, I, have, have you come across them before? I, I haven't. No, no, I haven't. Oh, okay. One last question. Whilst I love the show, Margaret and David could churn out four, sometimes five reviews in a half-hour show, mm. and usually we're lucky to get three from you. Would you mind explaining that's, the Excuse rationale? me, that's not actually true. The general hit rate of this show is uh, five or six films reviewed a yeah. week. And Thank they you. had half an hour, and we've got two hours. Yeah, out, and then, so but we have other... Th- yeah, but did they have Ken Browner for half an hour? Exactly. He just of took up all did. that space. He came in here with his chocolate snack... And he just, and his charm and his chuckle, charm and his chuckle, and his hundred thirty-two million dollar opening weekend, and he just behaved like he owned the place. There is a, there which is, in a very real way he does. There is such thing as a hundred thirty-two million dollar smile, and we've just <laughs> anyway. Let's hear from the impoverished and now no longer Margaret and David. This is what they sound like. It's lovely that there are so many Australian components in the creation of this. Huge amount. I mean, it's virtually and an Australian it's movie. it's taking the world by storm, yeah. this movie, which is really, really lovely. Mm. I think it's charming. 
for me, it's another animated feature, and I truly, I wish I could embrace it. I more wish than, you could too. I'm, there's something about I'm, the I'm, inner child in you, Margaret. That's yeah, what you need I, to I think tease the inner out. child got buried long ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think kids are going to love it. I don't know I'm whether sure they will, yeah. you know I reacted against you know all those memories of picking up all those Lego pieces. All right. of, okay, <laughs> that's uh, mother, that's ah, fine. For Commonwealth commoners, not bad. No, that's very good. But, they're even, but they've been retired, so let's not, uh, let's not tie ourselves to them too much. No, but I think the thing that's, that's interesting is that somebody who was addicted to that has now found, found us. us. I think they're both critics, though. That's the main weakness in their show. But you're why they're critic as well. I'm not, no, 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 absolutely not. I'm the host and you're the critic. OK. Contributor. Fine. Contributor as well. Yeah. Uh, we should do <clears> the box <throat> I was talking about. I was just going to run out of time. Yeah, and then not yeah. do more than, like, three... Reviews That's like right. a whole Margaret program. and David would be able. To they would have by now. In. They would have reviewed everything. That's right. And they've had a. They'd have a cursory glance at all the big showbiz stars that are appearing on their show. Let me ask you very quickly. Yes. When you interviewed Russell Crowe, did you ask him about Babadook? So I should say Russell Crowe uh, uh, interviewed him yesterday for his new movie, The Water Diviner, and uh, a little clip when he was talking about uh, buying Leeds United uh, has already gone out. So, has it? Yeah, fine. Uh, I did ask him about good, Babadook. Good, good, good fun. Had he seen it? You'll have to wait. You'll have to wait. You'll have to wait until to see what he thinks. Because okay. his movie uh, and Babadook both won. Yeah, they tied at the Australian best film uh, film institute uh, best film of the year, which was uh, you know, I mean, they, they, I think they have had joint winners before, but it is still fairly rare. And you can hear all of Russell Crowe on the program next week. Uh, at number ten, Sean the Sheep, love it, yeah, still doing good. brilliantly and still really sweet and terrific. Kingsman is at uh, number nine. I think we've uh, we've talked about that enough, but still still hanging in there. Big Hero Six. The interesting. So Big Hero Six was the film that won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature this year. Be- beat um, the Tale of the Princess Kaguya, which we're reviewing uh, today. I liked it very very much. Although uh, having seen Tale of the Princess Kaguya, I'm not sure. Yes, I think that Princess Kaguya is probably better. Uh, I think I'll have to be the judge. Yeah, yeah. Even though I'm not a critic, obviously. No. Still Alice is at number seven. Simon um, in Uxbridge yes. on this email. Simon Mark just seen Still Alice and felt I'd like to add to some comments to this admittedly admirable film. My mother was diagnosed with aphasia, a form of dementia that affects formulations of words and actions and ends up affecting all areas of bodily function. Sadly, this culminated in her passing away five years ago. My issue if you can call it that with the movie, is that in lots of ways, I'm not sure it goes far enough. Dementia, Alzheimer's, is a life-sapping and ultimately miserable disease, which eventually extinguishes all joy and hope. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that taking Julianne's character down Super Sad Street was necessary, but I hope people realise that there is some degree of sanitation going on here. Maybe an epilogue of a six months later may have given us a realistic, if un-Hollywood, friendly, sad end, but the indie ethic of the movie could well have sustained this type of hit. Perhaps we just need to leave that to everyone's imagination and interpretation. I did enjoy the film, but feel that those without first-hand experience may see it as some form of template, which, whilst not fair, may happen. The moment when your own mother forgets your name and ultimately has no idea who you are is a horrid feeling that will always stick with you. hope this doesn't distract from a good movie, but just wanted to add to the debate. Simon in Uxbridge. It's, um, I understand entirely what you're saying, and uh, it's something that I've heard from, uh, from other people, and as anyone who's had first-hand experience of dealing with, um, uh, of caring for somebody with Alzheimer's will know, certainly when you see Still Alice, you're, you're not seeing the half of it. That is absolutely true. I think the question you have to ask is whether or not the primary purpose of Still Alice is, is you know, as a description of that, or whether it is something else. I think that what the film does is that it deals with something which is very difficult in a way which is 
which is honest and um, and open and forthright, it is absolutely true that it doesn't, you know, the, the, the movie retains a certain amount of distance and it is, I mean, it, the, 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 I think sanitise is a slightly unfair word because in a way still Alice is really about her character and it is about, the, you know, the positive side of it as the, as the title says that she is still Alice. But I do understand what you're saying and I, and, and I, and I, 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 I sympathise with it. I just, I wonder what the movie would be like if what it was trying to do was a movie that was, just, that was literally just trying to describe um, exactly what's happening with this this kind of circumstance, and I'm, I'm not sure that that would be a movie that would be um, th- I'm not sure that that would be a movie that would have much success or much traction. I think that what Still Alice does is it manages a balancing act between being watchable and also be- and also having those moments of hope, those moments of joy, those moments of of pleasure and, and friendship and lucidity that are, it is really important to understand that those things are there. That's why I think that the title still Alice is very evocative and, and says a lot about what the film is trying to be about. I like it very much, but I do understand the criticism. Uh, Chappie's at number six, Neil uh, Bergam on this. Uh, Chappie, not entirely crappy. Some really... <laughs> I didn't even know that was allowed. But apparently Is that that's going allowed. on the poster? Apparently that's allowed. Some real, <laughs> some really good moments. Did you the... did you veto that, Rob? Did that, that's OK. Would you the stop editor... talking? No, what do you mean Why did I stop talking to him? You talk to him all the time. Yeah, but not on air. Thank you. Some really good moments in the film, but let down by characters that we don't really care about. And using a rap duo rather than real actors is a big mistake. That said, entertaining sci-fi, but could have been so much better. Three out of five. I know at least one teenager who came out of it and said, that's the second best movie I've ever seen after Donnie Darko. Yeah, but I think... But, but what? No, I think it's that's... a perfectly any... valid point. As you just said, you're not a critic, so... I mean, you just found them annoying. Oh, what, the rap duo? Yeah, Why, they can't act. Well... Well, they, they, they're they arguably acting themselves. So are you yes. saying that they can't act themselves? A bit like Gordon Ramsay. In that. Yes, but Gordon Ramsay. In, what was that film called? Hell's Kitchen. No, uh, Love's a, a Trifle, a Loving Trifle. Love, what's it? Worst Kitchen Ever. Love's no, no. Kitchen, that's right. There was a bit where Gordon Ramsay turned up and went, oh, I'm, cool. I'm Gordon Ramsay. I don't entirely know how to act. And we mind. didn't believe him. We didn't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> that was the worst cameo, although actually... Yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey at number five. Don't need to say anything else about that. Sweet Francaise is at number four. The, f- the strange thing about Sweet Francaise is, um, so it's, you know, set in World War Two. Uh, Erin Nemirovsky's unfinished novel is the source of it. You know, two stories together, two novellas together. And I rather liked it. I, I, I thought it was, you know, handsomely mounted. I thought Saul Dibb did an intelligent job with it and he and his co-screenwriter worked well to effectively put one story into the other, the story of the Paris exile into the story of what's happening in the in, in the town of Boosie. I've read a lot of critics who've been very sniffy about it, who said that somehow, you know, because it then because it's not in French, uh, it's inauthentic, and that somehow it's like it's prettified or chocolate box. I think there there is there are things about it that are slightly tend toward the soapy, but I generally like it much more than most of my kind of fellow critical colleagues have liked it. I thought it was nicely complex, although it was interesting the way it dealt with characters and didn't make any anyone... Nobody was wholly good or wholly bad, actually, during the course of the movie. Characters changed. Their personalities changed. You saw real ambivalence in them. And I, I, I liked it. I Don't be put off by the negative reviews. I thought it was a much more solid piece of work than people are giving it credit for. And Kristen Scott Thomas is absolutely fantastic. Uh, Meg Dainteth. Sweet Francaise is a tidy, enjoyable film. No, that's a good phrase. 
with a developing story and three-dimensional, sometimes contradictory, in a good way, principal character. Exactly so. Atmosphere and setting feel true to its subject period. It's just the right length. Mm-hmm. Take note, Hollywood. And the production design is beautiful. And it? successfully brings gravitas to its few more violent events using the quiet village context to show the swing of calm to calamity of wartime. It's not a deep story nor a classic, but it does have emotional impact and empathy, particularly as the credits roll. And we learn about yeah, the author's yeah. story uh, around the book. Uh, that's number four. Number three is focus, which is, you know, utterly flimsy. It's all to do with surface. It's all flash. It's all style. There is no substance there whatsoever. That's not to say that it isn't, you know, fleetingly enjoyable because you have Will Smith and Margot Robbie. These are, you know, perfectly decent performers. But it is, if you if you think of if you think of a film like The Sting, which is a con man film in which you're completely engrossed in the characters, and as the as the the, the twists and of the and turns of the narrative happen, you are you're genuinely surprised by them. In the case of Focus, you just go, well, I don't believe any of this stuff is happening, but there are some there are a couple of enjoyable jokes. It is all surface, and the more it goes on, the more that there isn't any substance to it, it the more grating it becomes. Phil Hobden, uh, I just don't get the hard time Mark is giving to Focus. Okay, I get it. Obviously, he's a critic and he doesn't like it. That's fine. But this is really <laughs> One of those films where you have to ignore the critics and just go and make up your own mind. Yes, Focus is light, totally forgettable. Yes, it's overall nothing that we haven't seen a million times before. But it's the film I've most enjoyed this year. Robbie and Smith have electric chemistry. The film is beautifully shot. It has a wonderful soundtrack and it oozes cool. It looks like a film they enjoyed making. I can't remember the last time I left a cinema with such a smile on my face. Not every film has to be Goodfellas or The Exorcist. Sometimes I'm happy just to be indulged to check my brain in at the door and enjoy the ride. Michelle Akehurst says, I hated the trailer for Focus, had no interest in it at all, but I was tempted to see it when my boyfriend told me that he'd pay for the posh seats. <laughs> they, well, they're the rumble seats. That's the, that's the swinger. I actually rather enjoyed it. Movies have to suck me into the storyline and get my attention. This did from the very beginning. No, it won't win any awards. Yes, critics will hate it, but for me, it wasn't too shabby at all. Uh, number two is Run All Night. Uh, Paul Boland says, John. I see the Taken 3 crowd have still got money to burn. Very good. They could have given that to Comic Relief. Yeah. I mean, it's... It, it's <laughs> there is something just depressingly, oh, here we are again, and it's that story again. And I mean, I, I think the, the best that can be said about it is that it it does show A Walk Among the Tombstones up to be as rubbish as it was. Um, it is Liam attempting to balance character development with uh you know with action but i th- it it really feels like this has no pun intended run its course and it would be lovely wouldn't it be lovely to see liam neeson doing one of those doing kinsey doing something like that because you know he can do it and i know those films never made a huge amount of money but that's what we want uh, bill mcpherson's in southampton chaps i just wanted to get in touch and say i thought you were a bit harsh on liam neeson last week when you said he keeps playing the same character you mean like every action star that there's ever been? While it's true that Big Liam is and has been a proper actor for most of his career, at a certain point the idea of being an action star has been sold to him and he's gone with it successfully, I think. I'm sure, being the intelligent guy that he seems to be, when he sees these scripts he probably says, isn't this a bit like the last one? To which the exec <laughs> or agent says, it never stopped Bruce Willis, Arnie <laughs> Stallone, Van Damme. So I think your criticism of Liam is a bit harsh when he's just decided to step into this genre for a while and why not people are enjoying it. For a while, for a while, it's just, it's, this is, you know, taken three and it's, it's, it's more than for a while. 
Okay. Six movies is more than for a while. Run on item number two and the box office number one because they know precisely what they're doing. Precisely what they're doing. The second best exotic Marigold Hotel. Which is, you know, in terms of box office figures, has performed better than they had expected. It's drawn in the same crowd that came to see the first one. And, you know, I, I, it, and, and it is exactly as you would expect it to be. The story is not quite as uh, effective as the first time round. You do get the sense that they're sort of having to find some way of contorting the narrative. So now there's a, you know, there's a young marriage and then we have Richard Gere is brought in as the, as the new character we think might be a hotel inspector, which of course makes everybody think that it's an episode of Faulty Towers. But it's charming. I mean, you know, Celia Imry is terrific. <coughs> Excuse me, it's terrific. And uh, Judy Dench is terrific. And if you liked that cast from the first film and there is a huge wellspring of affection for them and I understand entirely well because they're, they're well-written characters they're funny you know it's nice to spend time in their company there's nothing in it that would surprise you but it's it's you know it and and it's serving an audience who are ill-served <clears throat> by Run All Night and by Focus and by some of the other movies in the top 10. Michael Carlin has an interesting email um, back in the 80s, I met a budding filmmaker from... He says how much he enjoyed last week's programme. Yeah. I met a budding filmmaker from England at Sydney College of the Arts. One thing led to another, and I followed her to London to pursue a career in show business. In our 25th year of marriage and a few films under our respective belts, Mark reviewed, quite favourably as it happens, our two latest films back-to-back on last week's show. Oh, what was This it? is a first for us, and although Mark neglected to mention either of us by name... I'm sorry. ..it would make me very happy if he gave a shout-out to Laura Hastings-Smith, producer of X Plus Y. Oh, well, and very good. We've got a very positive review to it. Uh, hello to Laura Hastings-Smith, producer of X Plus Y. And Michael Carlin, who's a production designer, and they're clearly delighted with all that but, um, and, and Michael Carlin c- congratulations thank Perfect. you Michael uh, and thank you Laura uh, anyway we're halfway through what's coming up in our next entertaining hour Mark we shall be doing uh, The Tale of the Princess Kagoya we shall be reviewing Sean Penn in The Gunman after he came on the show and spoke about it and, other stuff. and if you'd like to get involved you can uh, you can watch the live stream then you can text 85058 you can tweet at Wittertainment and you can email mayo at bbc.co.uk Kyle and Jessamine Evans, just ahead of some reviews. My wife and I are medium-term listeners, first-time emailers. Sadly, we have to report a WIAR incident. Hang on. Wittertainment... Influenced accidental rudeness. We haven't haven't had one of these before. (laughs) On a rare evening cinema visit, our nine-month-old Edwin usually limits us to daytime parent and baby screenings, we decided to purchase an overpriced hot beverage before the film <laughs> before the film started upon receiving our order the teenage server said you'll have to wait a minute i don't know how to do hot chocolate mm-hmm. to this my wife replied without hesitation you just, just do, do hot it. chocolate cue embarrassment all round especially as we had to wait for about 5 minutes while the manager showed the poor lad how to do it it seemed a bit harder than snapchat <laughs> thank you carlin desmond uh, lots of good snapchattery by the way uh, happening already on this program do we get some snapchattery with uh, with sir ken so Ken is on our Snapchat feed. Uh, Josh, who describes himself as a young trot in London. Dear Simon and Mark, sobbing gently. What's up? Picture this, if you will. As I type my first ever wittertainment levelled email. I'm a broken young man. 23 years of age, dressing gowned and resembling a horribly weepy blend of Duke Orsino and the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character from 500 Days of Summer. (laughs) Yes, you guessed it, I'm recently single. On this occasion, even Morrissey is struggling to adequately temper my uh, dejection and rejection. 
Although the very thought of my only recently estranged ex-girlfriend is gut-wrenchingly saddening, she has unwittingly provided a magic elixir to my grief in the form of your flagship film programme. Despite her misgivings, which I am certain will in time turn out to be not quite so cruel as have deemed them presently, it is to her you can direct your appreciation for converting me to the church. During our relationship, I scoffed at her unwavering loyalty to your broadcasts. That quiffy weirdo again, I would spout at her without any intention of actually listening to a show. However, since the breakup, to end all breakups, I found myself acquiescing and tuning in. So he's listening to us on the rebound, basically. <laughs> tuning in live to last week's show. And wow, what a revelation. I'm delighted to say I am a post-apocalyptic neophyte with the back catalogue of podcasts and uncut YouTube videos, a source of pure delight in the bedridden days of self-indulgent melancholia in which I find myself. See how he structured that sentence? Yeah, I was, I, He's I, good. I was, I'm still trying to figure that out. Inadvertently, it seems, said ex-girlfriend has provided me with a partial antidote to her upsticking. For this, I can only thank you for... I'm hopeful that the aforementioned star-crossed lover will... Uh, be listening and hear my reluctant gratitude in Simon's dulcet tones and can only ask one favour from the good doctor. Could he offer some words of emphatic condolence? Failing that, he could just shout, man up, which seems to be the modern man's answer. Man up? Yeah, to any crises. Do we do that? I don't think so, and I don't think we would ever say that. No, I would say sincere condolence, if I could actually say it. Yes. I would say sincere condolences. Is that it? Well, what, what well, else? It needs a little bit of encouragement, really. Okay, it'll it it will all be all right in the end. Thanks. I think that's precisely what he was after. And if he's a trot, then he has a, a certain view of history. Exactly. You know, which, in which case everything will work out. Yeah. You know, the forces of dialectic materialism are at work. Really, this is you know the problems of well, well two little people in yeah. this particular case don't amount to a hill of beans. Work is crazy. Control of means of production and all that. Yeah. What else? <laughs> I love it when you get radical. Tell us something that's brand new and exciting. So Mummy, which is um, the fifth feature by uh, Xavier Dolan, who is a French-Canadian director who is in his mid-twenties, which is really, he's made five feature films. It's absolutely astonishing. And I have to say, I, I haven't liked all of them by any means, but this is an impressive piece of work, it, um, histrionic and yet heartfelt. It is essentially a story about three characters. One of them is um, a mother played by Anne Duval, who is... Uh, attempting to hold her life together financially. She has been bereaved. She's lost her husband. She has a, a, a teenage son, brilliantly played by Antoine Olivier Pilon, who, or Pion perhaps, um, uh, who is this uh, hyperactive and uh, very sort of behaviourally aggressive character. At the beginning of the film, is effectively excluded from all education uh, because he set fire to a cafeteria. And she now has to look after him. She also has to hold down a job and she has to deal with this sort of explosive force of nature in her life. Uh, peculiarly, as a result of this, she ends up befriending a uh, sort of a, a very reclusive neighbour played by Suzanne Clement, um, who has teaching skills but has retired from teaching because effectively she's had a breakdown from, from doing teaching. And these three people form an unexpectedly positive family unit in the face of sort of raging chaos now the thing about the film is it's very very the emotions that it has are very raw it's very much about people in confined spaces sometimes behaving appallingly to each other i said this central uh, character steve who's you know he can be destructive and loud mouth and obnoxious and yet also there is something sweet and tender if uncontrolled and dangerous about him and for most of the movie um, the film is uh, framed in a five by four ratio, which is almost square. You know, if you think of the old Academy ratio, which is four by three, 
the, what we think of as the old sort of square frames, it's slightly oblong. Five by four is, I suppose, best described as being like a camera phone ratio. And if you take a photograph of somebody on a camera phone, that's what the image would look like. And it's very boxy. So consequently, you kind of feel this claustrophobia. You feel that the, um, that the environment is physically pushing in around you. And as you start to watch the film, you think this is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult to watch the film in this ratio. It feels really, really claustrophobic. And then as the drama moves on and as the characters start to develop these unexpected relationships, still with all this kind of chaos and pain and anguish, and as I said, very, very raw and very aggressive emotions on display, there is a moment of release there is a moment in which they seem at least temporarily to have escaped their surroundings and there's a just lovely shot with the kicker guy steve who's on it on his skateboard and he literally pulls the frame apart he reaches out and he pushes the edges of the frame apart and the screen opens up and you feel the film breathing you feel it you can you suddenly feel the space you suddenly feel the you know this openness. Now, for the rest of the film, it then vacillates between being in that 5 by 4 ratio and being in the more open ratio. It's using the framing of it to effectively mirror where the characters are emotionally, financially, physically, and to give you a sense of the claustrophobia from which they are suffering, but also the expansive possibilities of life. And I was thinking of, you know, you saw Life of Pi, didn't you? Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about Life of Pi is that the shape of the frame of that film changed all the way through the movie. But I don't think people didn't they didn't necessarily notice it. I mean, one of the reasons they did it was so that when they did the 3D, when the, the fish were jumping out over the boat, they actually appeared to be coming out of the screen. You think about a film like Grand Budapest Hotel, in which each particular time frame is done in a different uh, screen ratio in order to emphasise the, the period that we're in. So all the time that you're watching the film, the shape of the screen is changing. In this particular case, what I thought at the beginning was going to be a gimmick, was going to be something that seemed too formal, that seemed too oppressive that seemed almost like it was going to overpower the whole movie i got used to very quickly and then when this moment comes when he literally physically pulls the screen apart you do get this sense of the widening of the horizon the widening of the scope the widening of the perspective terrific performances from the three central players completely committed you absolutely believe in them the there's a rather bombastic mixtape soundtrack going on with dido and celine dion and uh, an oasis which which occasionally kind of there's nothing about the soundtrack which is subtle i have to say but the emotions on display are very raw and the film captures that really well and actually through all the the pain and the heartache and the tragedy which is going on in the story, and this actually to some extent relates to that previous email about Still Alice, what's important is that the film seems to be made by somebody who feels sympathetic towards the characters and also believes that they have hope even when their situation appears hopeless. The film is called Mummy, uh, directed by Xavier Dolan. Uh, Kurt van der Bash, who is a Nova Scotian living in Prague. Wow, hello. Um, last November he saw uh, the movie. Uh, oh, he saw Mummy? Yes. Great. Uh, it was part of the uh, Mezzi Patra LGBT Festival in Prague. I went along not expecting much from a niche film by essentially a Canadian child director. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean it's five features yeah. by the age of 26 is how, nuts. How surprised I was then to find myself stifling sobs and at the end sitting gaping in almost disbelief what was definitely the best film I'd seen in ages and would see, oh, there we, and would see for quite a while. Mummy is... Are we saying mummy? Even well, it's, it's written mummy. It's, it's, the, it's the American spelling, isn't it? Mummy. Yes. So, uh, but I think we say mummy. But it's written mummy. Yes, it's written M-O-M-M-Y. Okay. I, mean, I, I mentioned it because when I talked to Matthew Vaughan about Kick-Ass, 
he refers to it as kick ass. And I said, but it's not. That isn't what it is. He said, well, I'm British. We don't say it. so. So mummy is, but it's the American spelling. Mummy. He says kick ass. Yes, that's how. And he made the that's, film, and that's how he that's, described. Well, he's wrong. It, it might be his <laughs> film, but he says, well, I'm English. That's what I do. Yeah, but a lot, not, a lot hey, of English people say kick ass. Uh, he needs to get with the program. Yep. Anyway, <laughs> Kurt says, "Mummy is mummy is a masterpiece that weaves between uncomfortably realistic and mag- magically elegiac in a single Elegi- sequence." Yeah, it is. In all its characters, uh, they're deeply flawed. We make fists and grit our teeth in tense anticipation of the inevitable fallout as we watch them make their decisions, the bad and the painful but necessary, and we beam when Dolan allows us a moment of release, the oddest yes. and best of which a kitchen lip sync sing along to some 90s Celine Dion. Yeah, exactly, which, the, which is not something you'd, you'd think would actually be an uplifting moment, but it is. In the four months since, I have not stopped thinking about Mommy. Good. Kurt van der Bash, thank you. Thank very you. Much what a lovely email. 317, uh, mayo at bbc.co.uk, 85058. What else is out? Well, I'd, I'd like to. Let's, let's do Princess Kagoya now, if that's okay with you. So, um, The Tale of Princess Kagoya is the, the a, a Studio Ghibli film. And as you know, uh, Hayao Miyazaki, after he made uh, The Wind Rises, you know, that was his swan song. He was saying he was going to retire. And so it kind of, um, there was a question about, and there is still a question about what's going to happen to Studio Ghibli, whether or not they are going to carry on. They've been talking about shutting down the production arm. Anyway, meanwhile, the co-founder of the studio, Asayo Takahata, has um, delivered this extraordinary film, which he's been working on for eight years and which was nominated for the Best Animated Feature Oscar in which it lost out to, interestingly enough, the anime-inflected Big Hero 6. Uh, the story is based on uh, the famous legend dates back to the 10th century, which is essentially the simplest way of describing it is there's a woodcutter who is cutting bamboo, who finds in a bamboo stalk a tiny glowing little creature, almost like a Thumbelina creature, which, which then turns into a baby, which is raised by him and his wife. He believes that she she's a princess and he's sort of made to think this more by the fact that equally magically gold and fine linen start turning up. Uh, in the same bamboo uh, stalks. So he then, she she goes, her friends call her Takanoko, uh, which means little bamboo because of the speed with which she grows. But he believes that she's worthy of more and he takes her to the city, takes her to the capital where she learns to become a society lady and where she is then uh, basically attempted to be wooed by suitors to whom she sets effectively impossible tasks because... She doesn't really want to be in the city. What she wants is the earthly paradise, the sort of the idyllic Eden-like childhood that she had growing up in this rural surroundings in this sort of really, you know, wonderfully... you know, you can almost you can feel the mud, you can feel the streams, you can feel the grass, you can feel the bamboo stalks, and she longs for that. And of course, it turns out as the story uh, progresses that actually what she's longing for is a return because she is she's a moon child. She's uh, she's something ethereal and something strange. We know that for a fact because, as I said, she was discovered at the beginning in this piece of bamboo. And the the movie is, if you're a fan of uh, Hayao Miyazaki's films, the style is very very different. It's kind of charcoal strokes and uh, watercolours and the animation is much more impressionistic, much more expressionistic, much more to do with suggestion than it is to do with uh, actually clearly defining things. An awful lot of it is actually left rather wonderfully to the imagination. You get this sense of it deliberately calling your attention back to the 
this sort of the the age old history of the art which they are using, and it's utterly engaging. It's strangely magical. There are moments in it. There's a scene, and I know every critic who's, refer, who's reviewed the film has referred to this. There is a scene very early on in which the young baby learns to crawl, learns to jump by watching frogs, this pair of frogs jumping along on the floor. And she, she sort of starts to mimic their actions. And it's extraordinary. It's an absolutely beautifully rendered version of the of the motion of child, the motion and the emotion of childhood, just done with these very simple strokes, very simple lines, everything to do with suggestion, everything to do with with you know it it's what you allow the imagination to fill in of course kagoya falls in love with this world and of course she does because with these wonderful watercolors with this really tactile sense of the world of course she falls in love with it the story itself is profound and melancholic and moves towards a third act which in other hands could easily have fallen over into something that was just simply silly simply sort of weird and strange and doesn't work but there is this sort of lyrical folk uh, music playing uh, through which kind of prepares us for what's to come. So even when it becomes completely outlandish towards the end, we're totally swept up in it. Um, there are stories that it, it's been reported that it's uh, Sarah Takahata's uh, last film. He took eight years to make it. He's a late septuagenarian. But, you know, we, I think we take any of these stories of um, people's final films with a pinch of salt. Miyazaki had, of course, uh, said that he was going to retire before. And then, of course, and then he ended up making The Wind Rises, which is you know, such a wonderful piece. Actually, he made several films because he said he was going to retire about 10 years ago. Um, I saw it in the Japanese version. There is a dubbed version. There is an English dubbed version. Um, obviously, not uh, for, for this kind of thing. Not everybody wants to see subtitles um, because you know younger viewers can't read them. And I know some people do uh, you know, aren't crazy about subtitles anyway. For me, I thought the subtitle to Japanese language original was particularly terrific. But it doesn't matter which language you see it in because the language of the visuals are universal and um, and it's a really wonderful, evocative film that causes you to engage your imagination and to to sink yourself into this world willingly and knowingly and it's it has real beauty and real joy does it have a fist bump uh no it oh. doesn't and that's probably why big hero six won la 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 la. <laughs> um so we're going to do insurgent in a oh, moment yeah, by the way um do you remember uh, on last week's program can i just we say somebody who said somebody emailed and said the, the funniest thing last week's program was you saying that whenever I say, do you remember or do you know, the answer is always no. No, absolutely. It's true. Off you go. Do I remember what? This, um, well, I'm only going back to last week's program, so maybe you will remember it. The sequence where we, we heard from somebody who listens to our uh, podcast at half speed. Oh, yes. Just to make it last longer. Because we had an outrageously <laughs> short program imposed on us. By uh, news and by, sport. By horses who demanded that they take our time away. Anyway, uh, and it was an interesting way of just making us last longer. But Andrew Webb then uh, on this email. He's done something slightly strange. So he says, on your last show, you read an email from a listener who listened to your show at half speed. I go the other way. I listen to your podcast at triple speed. <laughs> to get it over fast. Yeah, doing this, mean, uh, doing this means I can cram many more podcasts whilst working at my extremely important job of putting things on a shelf in a generic supermarket. <laughs> so just another little taste of that, then. Yeah. That's us at triple speed. It does get the whole thing over and done with, doesn't it? Your reviews will be over in 
20 minutes or so. Yeah. That way. Yeah. But then all this be, then there'll be all your email reading. But can you, sorry, you can't no. understand what's being said at that speed. It's not just me. Is it? That's <laughs> no fine. idea at all. Okay, good. Some advice before we move on. Uh, Natalie in East Grinstead. Yes. I Hello, have a, Natalie. I have a job interview next week and she needs some advice. Yes, go ahead. She's a really smart person, by the way. While conducting my background research at the company and its employees, I stumbled across the Twitter page of the company's director who will be conducting my interview. Okay. To my absolute delight, I discovered that he is a proud member of your church. Very good. I feel it might be nice to slip in a hello to Jason Isaacs. In the interview. Or a shut up but what into uh, one of my responses in the interview, but fear he might get the wrong impression. (laughs) What do you think? Have you got any suggestions? See, it's quite interesting because you don't want to over-presume. You don't want to appear presumptuous. You don't want to be too casual because this is a high-powered person who clearly has said, you know, he's a fan of the programme. What is it it that Natalie could say? Can I just ask, when was this email sent? Has has this interview happened? five past eight in the morning. Today? No, on Monday. So it's possible that this has already happened. No, I have an interview next week, so that'll be next week. Next week, week. Yes. fine. So the gentleman in... A gentleman? Or yes. Gentleman? Were you listening to any of that email? Yes, it's a gentleman who's in charge. Yes, of I was listening to all of it. I'm just trying to sift through the huge amount of information. Right, OK. So, so the, what right. can she say in this interview just to let everybody know that she listens to Here's her. Here's how it has to work. Yeah. The, 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 the gentleman who is going to be doing the interview yes. will have listened to this by then, OK? Presumably. Okay, fine. So here's how it's going to work. In the middle of the interview, she is going to say, and hello to Jason Isaacs, and he is going to respond, shut up, Butwood. That's a very high-risk strategy. It is a high-risk strategy. It might strategy, be that but he's busy, or maybe he's one of those people who catches up on podcasts, you know. But, that's what, but, she, but she's only saying hello to Jason Isaacs. I think she needs to be, I think it needs to be more careful than that. Oh, fine. Well, forgive me for just trying to come up with a solution. What do you suggest? No, no, no. I think it's an, in, it's, I think it's an interesting solution. But I just wonder and, and fear. I don't want her to I don't want to make it appear as though she's being presumptuous and overly familiar. What, to say hello to Jason Isaacs? There must be, I, I reckon there must be a, a phrase or a sentence or a construction you can come up with which makes it quite clear that she's listening to the programme without it appearing that she's a complete lunatic. Why doesn't you just go, <laughs> but them? That is also a high-risk strategy. <laughs> anyway, we'll come up with some ideas, uh, Natalie, <laughs> before the end of the programme. Oh, God, I dare you. I dare you in the middle of the interview to just go, but them. Or she could say if someone says, well, how are you going to do this job? Well, I'm just going to do this job. I'm just going to do this job. Again, a high-risk strategy. If someone can come up with anything. all week. 85058, mayo at bbc.co.uk. Tell us something new that you can fit in before the news and sport coming soon. Okay, so Insurgent, the Divergent series. Insurgent. Insurgent Divergent, Suggestive Digestive. I enjoyed the first one. Yeah. Okay, well... The problem to me, the problem with the first one was that there was an awful lot of exposition and a lot of battle exposition. And also, I, I think I have a fundamental problem with the idea of a future society being divided into slightly dopey character traits. It does sound like a too runny sketch. There is just no two ways about it. You know, that you're amity or that you're, you're the annoying ones that jump on and off trains. Just, just, out, of act- just out of acting school. Just say, yes, well, hello, I've just done some stuff. And, uh, and, and I like Shailene Woodley very much, but I did feel that the first film felt like it was doing a lot of sort of plodding ground. You know, we have to lay out this future. So in the back of it, you get this, this the whole, you know, we know the Hunger Games have been extraordinarily successful, so we're going to... However, for the second one, which is directed by Robert Schwentke, um and I'm sure I'm pronouncing Robert it wrong. who? Schwentke. S-C-H-W-E-N-T-K-E, okay. since you ask. Um, of whose films we've talked about here before. 
and one of the decisions that has been made, although obviously it's actually it's, it's kind of it's in the book as well in the second book, is that there's just a lot more action. So essentially, we start off uh, in Amity, and then during the course of the movie, in which they go to all the different worlds, so it's more scenic. Everything is more opened out. You get to see lots and lots of different places, but you also get a massive amount of action. Now, playing you a clip with a massive amount of action isn't really much fun because it just sounds like people going boom. So here is a clip from very early on with Miles Teller. You saw Whiplash, right? No. Okay, here is a clip very early on from Miles Teller, who he was the guy in Whiplash. He was the guy yes. in Whiplash, and here is him being snarky in Amity. You look a rainbow. It's pretty. <laughs> Virtual pathological friendliness with unquestioned pacifism. I love this place. Thank you. Go with happiness. Oops, oops excuse me. Hey, Tris, I really like your hair, by the way. Did you try to cut it all short and weird like yeah. that? Why don't you take your food and sit down, huh? Or what? Besides, I think we should all stick together now that we're all officially fugitives. So that's just a nice clip of Miles Teller, and it sort of gives a little astringent streak to the rest of the drama, which for the rest of it is somewhat lacking in that. So anyway, the story is they are they're divergent, and oh, she's she's super divergent. What does and that ca- mean? So she's more than one thing. She's not just friendly or legal or dauntless or. Out of acting school. Out of acting school. She's not just one that she's all of those My things. My goodness me. That's the whole divergent insurgent suggestive digestive thing. That's what she is. And this is a threat to Kate Winslet's very ordered society because Kate, Kate Winslet is kind of the ice queen of Janine. She's the person who's sort of trying to keep all this stuff together. So uh, they are sort of leading the rebellion of the divergence and they they have to team up, therefore, with the, um, with the what they call not the stateless, they call the factionless. They go to the, so they go to the factionless layer and that's like a, it's a bit mad maxi. And then the Amity Dome, that's like a, a bit kind of silent running with some trees and things. And then there's the erudite place and that's a bit... But in between each one of these, and in fact, during these, there are these spectacular action sequences. So it's running along by freight and jumping onto freight trains, very Louise Brooks. There's a section in which she has to go into the, um, once again, into the simulated thing. She has to go through all these simulations, and one of them involves a huge, fiery building in the sky, flying with her mother in it, and it's on fire, and she has to do a lot of... Why, why is there a building on fire Because it's sky? a simulation thing. It's oh. kind of dream. You remember from the first one? You remember from the first one, they have to do the simulation oh, stuff yeah. to discover what kind of person they are. It's like and the sorting hat. It's exactly like the sorting hat. It's, that's exactly what it is. It is the sorting hat. But more expensive. But more expensive and more like an Xbox game. Um, I kind of enjoyed it because I thought the action was, uh, you know, w- was fun. There were some good, you know, good cliffhangers, some good tense moments. Some of it was edge of your seat. There were two screenings that were offered to us. One of them was in Dolby and the other one was over at the IMAX. And if you saw it in the IMAX, it would have been sort of you know, bigger and more spectacular. Actually, in this particular case, I just wanted to see and sit and watch the movie. And I thought even just watching an ordinary screen with a very, very nice sound system, it was fun and it was gripping. It's still not Hunger Games. Um, it's better than Maze Runner. Shailene Woodley does hold the whole thing together and she does have, you know, sort of proper chops. It's interesting because a couple of weeks ago we were reviewing her in White Bird and a Blizzard in which she's really terrific in that film. And here she is sort of fronting a big franchise movie. I still have a fundamental problem with the underlying premise of it. I just don't buy this character trait thing at all. But on a sort of simple zip-zang-boom visual level, it passed the time perfectly fine. Mark Harrison, aged 18 in Manchester. Dear faction of wass-up and faction of <laughs> flappy hands, went to see the latest young adult franchise flick at my local multiplex, and here are my thoughts. Shailene Woodley's incredible and continues to grow as a star, and I now look forward to watching she is a star, yeah, whatever absolutely. she's in. Insurgent even does well in providing a few good roles for the supporting cast, particularly Miles Teller. There we Hansel go. Elgort. Oh, from whom we heard early on. Even if Theo James does sometimes seem a bit of a pretty boy sideshow to Woodley. 
Yeah, and th- then some. This, along with the Royal Blood song that played at the end of the film as the credits rolled, are my only plus points for the film, essentially. OK. Um, yes, and this is Simon in Southampton. Uh, ignoring the source material, it's a very good film, which I'm sure many of your congregation will enjoy. However, I was a little disappointed with just how far it differs from the book. Veronica Roth tweeted recently that the plot has been simplified for the movie. And whilst I understand this, I think it has gone a little too far. For example, <laughs> Mar- too much into runny, jumpy, shooty. Marcus Eaton is a major character in the book, and Four's relationship with his father is an important subplot in the film. Aside from one brief appearance at the beginning, Marcus is missing entirely. As someone who read and enjoyed the books, I was hoping for slightly more. Yeah, but, but but definitely what you're getting with this is a it's an action movie. That's what it is. It's not a literary adaptation. It's an action movie with with some talky bits. And there's another there's a third part on the way. Yes, and right. I I don't know, but how, are they splitting the third part into two as or, it is now? It would seem their want. Uh, Alan Fryer says, my three-year-old loves the cinema. He's desperate to see the Frozen short film, which uh, is uh, part of the Cinderella. Cinderella, I think it's on first. Isn't experience it? is Cinderella says Alan suitable for a three-year-old. Um, what certificate is it? Is it Euro PG? I mean, I, t- it's... I don't. I don't know. I'm, it, it's a U. I'm sure. I mean, it's, yes, it's very. It feels like a U. The, the, there's the, three I, is. Mm. It's. I mean, it's it's ninety minutes long, so it's not something which is uh, testing in terms of. Although really, obviously, with the, with the with the frozen short, it's um, hundred minutes long. I mean, I would, the, I would, I would, I would, I would say yes, but obviously, you, you know, Kate Blanchett is a nasty character, and yes, but no more, no more nasty than the nasty characters in the Disney animations that everyone has grown up with. So you know. So it, it, it is a you, but yeah. that's going to be kind of... I, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's your call. You know your child. Yeah, you, and if in any doubt, go see it first. Elizabeth, can you please stop doing that triple speed thing? It's driving my dog nuts. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, won't, no, we won't do that again. Okay. We definitely won't do that again. No. Are you about to do the gunman? Yeah. Right. Matt Teal has sent us an email. Um, I've been a devoted uh, listener for many years. I now find myself in the unusual position of possibly being in a film about to be reviewed. I say possibly because I don't know until it's released whether I've made the final cut. So go gently. Okay. I read the news for various television broadcasters and I received an email late last year asking if I would be willing to read some lines in The Gunman. With a cast list of Sean Penn, Javier Bardem and Ray Winston, naturally, I jumped at the chance. After a bit of toing and froing, I was told I'd been given the director's approval, so headed into London one afternoon. I was one of several newsreaders drafted in to read various lines to camera, and after wardrobe and makeup had made me vaguely presentable, I was led onto the set to sit in front of a green screen and read my lines from the autocue. Not too taxing, but it was made slightly more nerve-wracking by the fact that there were far more crew in the studio watching than in any of the studios I've ever worked in previously. What's the gentleman's name? This guy is Matt teal okay these people included the film's director pierre morel he have taken fame he was a charming man got me to read the line several times as my nerves got the better of me causing the first few attempts to be read at breakneck speed by the end he seemed happy with it and i went on my way having been unable to pluck up the courage to ask him who was driving could you spell his surname for me t-e-a-l-e e-a a man looks something up on the internet. No, but Simon, when, you when Mark, asked me to do this. When Mark reviews the government, could he please be aware that at least one of the people who may or may not be in in it is listening nervously? Could he please keep in mind that newsreaders have families to feed as well as actors? Okay, well, according to the IMDb, you're not in it. Okay, I'm just, I'm just, just, I mean, just break to... it to him gently, ease him into it. 
You're not in it, Matt, by the sound of it. Okay, yeah, sorry. I think sorry. it's Natasha Kaplinsky who got the gig. Nata- yeah, so that, Natasha Kaplinsky is uh, definitely in it. There are... Yeah, Dermot Murnahan's in it. Dermot Murnahan's in it. So the news anchors that are credited, Natasha Kaplinsky, Stephen Sacker, uh, and Dermot Murnahan, and Natasha Kaplinsky, and I've just, just done a global search on your name. You're, not, you're certainly not credited, um, so, as far as I can tell. Okay. Okay. So sorry Although, about that, Matt. frankly, I have to say, no great loss... Ah. Not you, but so um so uh, anyway, Sean Payne came on the on the on the show, and you've seen this film as well. Yes, and so basically, the, it, what what you get is about sort of fifteen minutes of sort of contextualized stuff about awful stuff in the you know in the DRC and the Congo and you know terrible civil wars and you know, exploitation and people doing awful things, and then he's going there's going to be an assassination that's going to be committed, and then it gets committed, and then he has to go in the wind. Sean Penn's character, Jim Terry, has to go in the wind. That means he has to sort of disappear, leaving behind the one he loves, who falls into the eyes of. Of why, why are you speaking in a strange way? Because it's the idea of you got in the ween. Because it reminded me of that. Um, it reminded me of Nell. Tay in a ween. Tay in a ween. You don't remember that, do you? No. Nope. Uh, Jodie Foster. Yeah. Yeah. There's an entire. There's yeah. there's an audience out there who understand entirely yeah. what I meant when I said yeah. Tay 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 in a ween. The rest of us don't. The rest of you didn't. Okay. So. Then it cuts to some time later. He's become humanitarian rather than being a sort of, you know, e- evil corporate person. He's been who does terrible things and assassinations. He's become somebody who's humanitarian. But it's like atoning for his. He is atoning. Well done. They should have called it atonement too. He is atoning for his sins, but somebody is out to get him. So he goes to go and see his superior to find out what, you know, what's going on. His superior, as we know, is played by greatest actor Evs. Mark Rylance, here's a clip. You look worried, Jim. What is it? Terry, who all knew about Project Calvary? Why do you want to dig up that history? Oh, I was in Congo for the last year. Yesterday, three indigs came after me, specifically after me. Specifically after you? That's not good. Well, for all those sakes, I hope you're wrong. Who knew about Calvary? You and me, Reed and Bryson, but we're all brothers. The clients knew, of course, but who they were, I don't know. I mean, mining corporations, politicians. That information was way above my pay grade back then. Felix Marty was the only civilian who knew about it. He was the only direct contact with the clients. I think if your gut instinct is that this trouble is related to Calvary, then we should both track down Felix Marty, find out who's behind it. The last I heard, he was back in Barcelona. I think I should track down Reed and Bryson and give them the heads up. I think they might be operating still. We should keep in contact about this. How can I reach you? I'll call you. You keep your eyes open, because they could be coming after you too. There's a lot of basil. Yeah, I mean, even best actor Evs can't make that stuff fly off the page, can he? And so, basically, you get a little bit of this kind of this sort of, you know, political backstory, you know, this, this context, there's stuff. But actually, all that stuff is there for is to justify 100 minutes of, essentially, PMRL, who's the guy who made Taken, and, uh, you know, he, he does what he does. Um, it's ammo porn, running around, running, jumping, shooting, and this time it's essentially Sean uh, Sean Penn pulling a Liam. He's decided that you know. Is I've that done... now a phrase? Well, it is now. Yes, I've done all this serious acting. I've done all this stuff. I've done all this socially conscious stuff, and there is a little bit of that in there. But basically, what I what this movie is about is look at the pecs on me. Well, look it is how quite much true. I have been in the gym. I look, look fabulous with my shirt off. I'm just going to spend some more time walking around with my shirt off and then I'm going to do lots and lots of running, jumping and shooting and then there's going to be some sort of car chasey stuff and then more runny, jumpy, shooty and, and then we're going to go to a bull ring in Barcelona where Mark Rylance is going to appear and attempt really hard to look like he cares. I mean, it's a funny thing. 
because I like Sean Penn very much. And when he came on the programme, you know, he was interested in the thing. But it's, it is the most bog-standard generic action pick with sort of little nods towards what it, you know, or there might be a political subtext, there might be stuff contextualising in the background. But honestly, all of that is irrelevant. It is, it is just another Pierre Merleau. The film is based on a, on a book. But actually, you know, the, the author of these events is, uh, is Pierre Morel, who's just doing, you know, m- more of the same. And the, and the problem with it is that you kind of expect more from, you know, from Javier Bardem, from Sean Penn, from this kind of calibre of... I, 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 look, don't get me wrong, I like a good action movie, and in a moment we'll talk about Jason Statham. But you felt the same way as I did. I mean, I know, you know, you found it with Sean Penn an interesting interview, but you felt exactly the same way as I did, which was absolutely bog-standard, unremarkable, generic, with an awful lot of look how much I've been in the gym recently, wasn't it? Yeah, and and I think that the contrast... I, mean, I think when I saw it, I was halfway through Wolf Hall, and the contrast between the lines that Mark Rylance had in Wolf Hall and the lines that he's given <laughs> in... I know. It was... It was, was astonishing. Astonishing. But it was quite clear from the Sean Penn, before what, what he said in the interviews, how hard he pursued Mark Rylance. No, I know, I know. And, and that's, but, but, but he pursued Mark Rylance really hard and then gives him nothing to do other than read the phone book. You heard that scene. I mean, was there any part of that, that that said to you, that is one of the greatest actors of their generation? Or did it not just sound Sadly like the not. speaking clock? But he has got a great chance. He's a genius. The man's a genius. It's just that he's clearly not interested in this material. Why? Because it's not very interesting. Uh, right. But there's other stuff uh, coming out. And I think it's Jason Statham time, is it? Yeah, so let's do Jason Statham. So uh, Wild Card, which is directed by Simon West. Um, this is uh, so William Goldman novel Heat, which was adapted by William Goldman for the screen as the Burt Reynolds movie in 1986. This is also this is basically a remake of that movie, again, based on a William Goldman, the William Goldman script adaptation of the same book. Um and one of the things that I like about Jason Statham is he's you know he's an action star and uh, and he's very good as a as an action star he's he's a, he's a top notch action star but he has also tried to sort of broaden his uh, dramatic palette recently and you look at films like Hummingbird which did very well with me but very badly with everybody else I mean not a huge hit with the critics not a huge hit with the box office uh, you know which is a real shame because I think he was sort of trying to you know to, 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 to broaden his scope but he, he understands that you have to do a certain amount of action and you just push the acting a, a little bit further anyway so the story is he is a Las Vegas chaperone in inverted commas meaning effectively he's a bodyguard at the beginning of it um, he uh, meets a female friend who has had a horrible ordeal which he agrees he will reluctantly agrees that he will go and sort out and help her get some vengeance and a sort of scene of uh, terrifically ripe vengeance ensues the film then wanders off in the most strange episodic things in which he he's got a dream that if he makes a certain amount of money he can go off and buy himself a future away from all this what he really wants to do is get away from las vegas but he can't get away from las vegas and the reason he can't is that he's kind of addicted to gambling in the same way that the character played by mark Wahlberg in the recent remake of the gambler is but I have to say Wahlberg was rather less convincing. So there's that, and then all the way through there are these strange little episodic bits in which he meets um, friends and uh, people that he knows who are played by you know top notch actors, people like Hope Davis, people like uh, Anne Hesh, and people like in a later moment in the movie Stanley Tucci. And what it's almost like what they decide to do is just go, okay, look. The Stath is not the world's greatest actor, but if we surround him with other people who can really act, then no one will notice. Here's a clip. Nicholas, Nicholas. Baby. (laughs) 
I heard you were up over 500 last night at the gate. Talk of the town. Do you remember when was it a couple months ago when you had us beaten for 200 grand? Right here at the Nugget? Till your luck changed. I'll get there someday. Nicholas. I'm just in a terrible bind, and it's all because of you. It seems that somebody broke into room 3506 last night, beat up on three guys, and took $50,000. And that was before I had my waiters. <laughs> if only that were funny. Come along, Nicholas. Come along where? To see DeMarco. I have to find the truth. Wait a minute. We've been on trial. For your life, I should imagine. Isn't that a great line? If only that were funny. So... During the course of the movie, there all these other people come in and do that kind of acting, do this kind of you know good, characterful, funny stuff. And the Staith does the thing that the Staith does. There are at regular intervals scenes of bone crunching fights in which it falls upon him to take out a whole room full of people with his bare hands, which of course he does brilliantly. And then it goes back to doing the other stuff about the gambling and the existential stuff and the sort of, you know, recovering drunk and desperate to get out of Las Vegas, but he can't because Las Vegas is this kind of hellhole cesspit from which you cannot escape unless you finally free yourself. And all those things are going on in the script. Now, it is not without problems. There is, there's, there's no question that it's, a, that it's anything like a perfect film. Um, but I have a real fondness for Jason Statham, and there are two reasons for that. One of them is that I think he is one of the few uh, sort of genuinely iconic B-movie presences that we have at the moment. I mean, he's, the camera loves him. He knows, he knows how to strike a pose on screen, and, that, and people think that that's, that that's nothing, and people think that I'm down on action movies. I'm not, honestly. If I, you see it done properly... That's how you do it. The other thing is, he fights like a dancer. And in the English-speaking world, action heroes who fight like dancers are few and far between. In the case of this, it's uh, an ambitious and broad attempt to sort of widen the canvas of what he's doing. And he's, he always understands. He understands what the core audience need. He understands what the core audience wants. And the films don't always work. I mean, you know, I said Hummingbird didn't, didn't find an audience. And in the case of this, it's done very, very poorly in America. But I liked it. I liked it with all its ragged edges and what's messy. It was originally to, uh, slated to be directed by Brian De Palma, and heaven only knows what Brian De Palma would have made of it. In the end, of course, Simon West has done a much more sort of nuts and bolts job. It's unflashy in terms of the visual direction, but the fight scenes are choreographed well, and I like a good action fight sequence. I, you know, I am fairly bored with seeing people running around shooting at each other because you just know how that, you know. It's, we all know how the conceit of those movies work. There is something much more interesting about seeing hand-to-hand fight sequences because of the way they choreograph, because when they're done properly, as we saw from The Raid, and indeed The Raid 2, that sort of stuff is to do with physicality and do with the physicality of performance. I don't think the thing's going to find itself an audience uh, in the cinema very much. I think it's going to find its audience at home on video. But I enjoyed it. I like the Staith. I like the fact that he keeps trying, keeps trying to just push the boundaries a little bit, and although not everyone buys into it, he's a genuine... He's a genuine action icon. And if you, if, honestly, if you have a choice between watching this and The Gunman, it's no question. TV movie of the week. Uh, earlier, uh, Ken Branagh was on and he's already chosen Edward Scissorhands, which goes out on film for uh, 4.50 on Sunday afternoon. Um, Rory O'Hagan, surely Mark's going to pick Airplane. He will, and don't call him Shirley. <laughs> Fiona uh, says Mark's going to pick Planet of the Apes. I'm going for Man in the White Suit because it's the man in the white suit. suit. Aaron Ward and David Dunn, I think it's going to go for In the Mood for Love, unless he remembers uh, the Arban Cinema in Hume, in which case he's going to go for El Topo. 
Joseph Whittle says, primer, proper brain-bending sci-fi that doesn't make any narrative concessions to, well, anybody, really. Do anything at all, yes. And Steve Clark, I think it's going to be the brilliant 13 Assassins, which has an incredible 45-minute all-action final third. I think Mark will choose Airplane, a film which is the truest definition of the word comedy from start to finish. What are you going to choose, Mark? I'm, I'm going to go for The Man in the White Suit, and there's a very good reason for this. There are so many great, great movies. Out of the film. I mean, you know, El Topo, of course, I remember The Arb, and everybody was in human in the 80s, um, because, you know, remembers The Arb, and it's absolutely wonderful. Rocky Horror Show is on again, of course, as it always is. Primer, I, I've had the great pleasure of interviewing Shane Carruth recently, and it was extraordinary to hear from somebody who had really made the movie absolutely on their own terms. You know, he's somebody who makes and distributes his films pretty much on his own and I'm a huge fan of his and I like Primer very much and I think you know he's a very very interesting filmmaker but the reason I'm going to go for The Man in the White Suit is this when I was um, about 10 11 something like that I had a half term at school in which the Phoenix Cinema which was then the Rex did a series of double bills and you could buy um, a ticket that would get you in for the whole week. And I spent an entire week watching Passport to Pimlico, Titchville Thunderbolt and Man in the White Suit. And I just loved it. It was one of those things that was kind of the magic of cinema. Even though these were back then, they were old movies, you know. And yet I I was just completely swept up in the experience. And whenever I see Man in the White Suit, a very good friend of mine has got a huge poster for it, which is a you know lovely poster. It's a you know, terrific story, and it it has meat, and it's you know it's about something. It's about value and uh, you know industrial espionage and espionage and all those things. But I'm choosing it because when I was younger, it was one of the films amidst, amidst that whole sort of group of you know Ealings that made me go, oh, I love the cinema. This is what I want to do. What I actually want to do for the whole of the rest of the holidays is spend it sitting here in a cinema like the Rex, as it was back then, just watching this kind of movie. And uh, that is on? It is on at uh, 1.10pm on Saturday the 21st of March on BBC Two. Now, 1.10pm, that's the afternoon, isn't it? Yes. So well, that's that a perfect... So perfect. Can you please congratulate me on doing that? Finding a film that everybody can actually see, see and might yeah. be interested to watch. Uh, okay, so we've got, uh, got time for one more before we unveil the movie of the week, uh, and then it's Drive. Uh, what else are you going to do? Okay, so we'll very quickly do Home, um, which is a story of uh, alien invasion, alien booths who are very good at running away. They spend their whole time running away. They run away to Earth, and they want to relocate to Earth because they're running away from these other people who are more scary. Uh, one of the key characters, Tip, is voiced by Rihanna, by Rihanna, pardon me, and uh, the lead alien, Boove, is voiced by our very own Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. Here's a clip. Let's have some tunage. This is not even music. This is just noise. <laughs> Involuntary physical response. Confusion. <laughs> what is happening to my body? It's called dancing. Boove do not dancing. <laughs> I can <laughs> How long before this kills me? I am not in control of my own extremities. I do not want it to work. Hey, hey you know what? Boove rhymes with groove. Shake your boove thing. It is shaking in a most undignified way. Oh no, my hands are in the air like I just do not care. <laughs> Simon, what's Boove? That's, that's why I said he is a Boove. They are an alien race, the Boove. Oh, oh, I see. That's they the name are of the Boove. Yes, that's why I kept saying Boove. And he's called O. And the joke is, he's called O because everyone likes him so much. And it's actually when he walks into a room and says, "Here I am." Everyone goes, "Oh." Um, so it's shiny and bright and frenetic, um, but rather empty and nothing there that's going to last or stay around in your memory for any great period of time. It's strange, of course, to see this in the same week as seeing something like um, the Turtle of the Princess Kaguya, Kaguya, 
let's call the whole thing off. Um, but it was kind of passingly fun while it was there. I mean, the, the Jim Parsons thing is is funny because whether or not you find that linguistic thing about it, you know, I am dancing my body and, you know, I, I am not happiness making. How, whether you find that funny or irritating it's kind of vacillates during the film and it's a lot of it is to do with there are moments when you think okay i'm going with this it is just big shiny happy fun and other times you think this really should be more substance of this than there actually is so it's big and colorful and candy flossy and uh nothing that's going to stick james king described it brilliantly i'm going to quote james king james king said it's an easter holiday movie not a summer holiday movie stephen garnett says i i knew i'd I spent the whole time thinking I'd seen this film before and then I realised it's based on a short film uh, shown before Mr Peabody and Sherman. A far better film. After being bored for an hour, I kept thinking, I know where I'd rather be right now, home, watching a better film. Uh, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. The movie of the week turns out to be... The Tale of the Princess Kagoya. Uh, next week, uh, we have Russell Crowe. We do. Well, you have Russell Crowe. Yes, but I, I, I'm there representing both of us. Okay, good. Okay, so Russell Crowe on the show uh, next week. Thank you very much indeed for listening. The podcast will be available very, very shortly. Standing by for Drive, coming next. How do you think we did there? Uh, on, you put your headphones on, Mark. We've started. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm, Here's uh, our final podcast moment. Yes. What were you doing? Was there something more interesting happening? No, no, elsewhere? no. I was just, you were doing something else. So I'm fine. Yes, I'm, you have my full undivided attention. What up? Do you, do you think we were okay today? Yes, I thought we were very good. Although we weren't as good as Kenneth, which was, you know, that would have been very, very hard to be as good as Kenneth. What wanted. a gleam and what a sparkle the man has. He's just, and he has, as we were saying, for he has the chuckle. And I, I was very aware during the program after you'd brought it up that when you and I laugh, it's not attractive. It's, it's not attractive. <laughs> it's actually a bit grating. He, here is the mark of a true star: yeah. that when you finish the interview, you think that if you said, "Do you want to come out for a cup of tea?" Yeah. And a biscuit. Yeah. I go. I would love to. And you, actually, you, you I, are very much of the opinion that if we'd said to Ken, "Fancy a swift half," he'd say. He would have said Actually, yes. Well, no, I think he gives the impression that he would, but he would find a perfect excuse. But the very best guests are people like Tom Hanks. He's, he, you know, when you're talking to him, best mate, absolutely. He, he'd do anything for you. Do you want to come on holiday, Tom? Sure. sure. Where are we going? We're going to Scarborough. That would be lovely. I've always wanted to go to Scarborough. But, you know, as soon he's like that with everybody. Because yes. They're big stars. Here's the thing from Elizabeth Campbell. My friend Hannah has recently moved into a new house in Tooting. And he's going to be holding a housewarming party at the end of March. With the arrival of the wonder that is the Wittertainment playlist, I was hoping you might join me in encouraging her to use said playlist as the soundtrack for her party. <laughs> I can't imagine... I bet that worked out well. Anything better... Well, it hasn't happened yet, so we're encouraging her to use it at her party. Very I cannot good. imagine anything better than enjoying an evening to the background accompaniment of Perturbator, Monty Python... And the Banana Boat song to name but three. But I'm yep. sure with your endorsement we can make this happen. At the very least, it, the selection of music would provide a talking point for the evening. Hello to Jason, Stephen, Fairport Convention uh, and so on, which indeed we should do. So just looking at the latest playlist to which we've added Bobby Socks and uh, Royal Blood, who turn up in the Insurgent yeah. movie, because one of our correspondents mentioned. Imagine a party that goes from Enola Gay to Marky Moon by television, Torn Between Two Lovers by Maria, Mary McGregor. Yes. Uh, then to Matty Groves by Fairport. I mean, what are you I'm not quite going to the kitchen there. Hoots Mon, Lord Rockingham's Eleven, just like Eddie, two versions, the Heinz original and Silicon Teens. And then we're dropping between Hocus Pocus... Hocus Pocus, Hocus Pocus by Focus. Richard Hawley, Kenny Rogers, Trio, Simon and Garfunkel, Neil Young, Lamb of God, Kissing the Pink, Bobby Boris Pickett and The Seekers and Stan Freeberg. Now, that's a pretty good shuffle, I must say. 
But as a party lineup, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it would be an eclectic party, and it would be a party of changing moods. It would be a party of, in the words of the Style Council, my ever-changing socks. A couple of people will get very excited. Oh, look, it's the GNU song, Flowers and Swan, followed by Lamb of God, and then they'll walk straight off again. Yes. Uh, if you go to the Five Live website, find our programme page. The playlist is there. Enjoy while you can. So if you, ju- if you just go to the play, you can just literally play the whole thing, like on, on a kind of random shuffle thing. Don't, don't look at... You're not allowed... You're not, if just, I'm not allowed to talk to him, you're not allowed to talk to me either. You just follow the steps. OK. There are 13 that, that steps. The, how, <laughs> how there do are three do, steps to heaven. How do you do playlist? You just do playlist. I do you know what the three steps to heaven are? Step one. You find a girl to love. Step two. She falls in love with you. Step three, you kiss, kiss and, and hold her tightly. tightly. Well, that sure seems like heaven to me. Uh, was there anything else that we needed to do, by the way? Uh, I think we've done all right. We could do the voices very quickly, if you'd like to. You, there's another movie that you want to talk about? Well, yeah, we could do it. So this is... Um, the best way of describing this is directed by um, the co-director and the creator of uh, Persepolis, and, um, which is maybe why you thought it was an animated feature. And the story is, it's set in this... You sound so weary mm. already, before you've even told us what it's about. Yeah, so Ryan Reynolds is working in this sort of strange, weirdy little small town. In Everything, everything is kind of pinky pinky overalls and um and happy smiling faces and he's trying to be normal and get on in the world but he's a kind of norman batesy character and uh he wants to get out and meet people and you know have relationships but he has a terrible habit of killing people and the film sort of swerves massively unevenly between on the one hand you know ghoulish humor and on the other hand sort of black visceral comedy and i think it's trying to get the the tone of something like eating Raoul or, you know, maybe parents or something like that. And it just doesn't. And you end up with, you know, I can understand why Ryan Reynolds would want to do this because it's kind of, you know, he's, he's sort of having fun with the cracked psychopath role, but I'm not entirely sure what Gemma Arton and Anna Kendrick are doing there. And, you know, Jackie Weaver is really the only person who seems to on the, you know, the, the female co-star roster, who seems to have any anything to sink her teeth into. And it's a very strange movie. And at the end, there's this weird musical number, which reminded me of Shock Treatment, which is the Richard O'Brien, you know, Jim Sharman movie, which I actually rather liked. And so it was definitely a hodgepodge. It's very difficult to get black comedy horror right. You know, comedy horror is a strange... And it's very easy to get the tone... Just, just a little bit of misbalanced tone goes a long way. And I did spend an awful lot of this thinking... I'm trying to figure out why this isn't working. And I suspect, I mean, the, our central character, he is uh, surrounded by the voices of angels and demons. His dog is his inner good side and his cat is his inner evil side. And he does the voices for the dogs and the cats who've got animated mouths. And he decides to do the cat as a sort of annoying Scottish voice, which he doesn't do very well. And it's one of you think this is grating and it should be funny and dark and satirical and strange. But actually, it's just not and why isn't it and i think the reason is that it's actually in the end not funny enough and as a result of it being not funny enough it means the kind of ghoulish dismembered heads in the fridges stuff just never quite gets beyond being just a bit out of place it's possible that of a friday night if you bumped into it on channel four at one o'clock on a saturday morning you go oh that's an odd thing to see Ryan Reynolds doing, but I don't know. Maybe you know, maybe there's something in there. But certainly, when you look at the uh, at the director's back catalogue, it's it's very very hard to place. Isn't everyone asleep by one o'clock? 
Uh, well, there's always, um, you know, recording devices. Oh, that's true. Claire Lydon says, I thought it was a brilliant film. Very, oh, OK, fine. Well, there we go. You know, very so. dark, definitely passed the six laugh test. I hope it does well and that the movie going public are not put off by Ryan in the lead role. Most people associate him with a rom-com. Therefore, may choose not to go, although I'm sure a lot of females will go due to him being okay. here. Well, I'm surprised. I recommend and look forward to hearing Mark's thoughts on the film. OK, well, there we go. The other opinions are available, as we can see. Yes, but none of them are quite as valid as yours. Mark, no. you have been quite extraordinary. And so have you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your contribution Thank you. to today's show. And I'm... You're definitely Margaret? Yes, I'm definitely Margaret. Glad we got that cleared up. <laughs> On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.